sorry just too late When our friendship turns to hate When our friendship turns to hate You'll be sorry just too late Welcome to the Laurel and Hardy Blogcast, the podcast that delivers the world's best Laurel and Hardy experts, authors and aficionados direct to your ears. Throughout this podcast series, we are taking a deep dive into every film Stan Laurel and Oliver Hardy made together during their 30-year screen partnership. We are, of course, covering these wonderful pictures in chronological order as they were filmed, and on today's show we have reached mid-1928, and the film under the microscope is the silent short Early to Bed. I'm your host, Patrick Vasey, the author of the Laurel and Hardy blog, and this is episode 20. Now, to cover Early to Bed properly, I've done something a little unusual in that I'm spreading this discussion over two episodes. And the reason for that is quite simple. Early to Bed is actually one of the most divisive films in the Laurel and Hardy canon. On today's episode, I am joined by the world's foremost author when it comes to the films of Laurel and Hardy, Randy Skretvet, and he is not a huge fan of the film. And to be fair, neither am I. And so, to ensure that we give a fair and balanced view of this picture, I've also invited onto the show a second guest who does appreciate Early to Bed, and that man is the world's foremost expert on the Hal Roach Studios, Richard Ban. So today, in episode 20... Randy and I will be shooting the breeze and talking about what we do and don't like about the film. And then following that, you'll be able to hear episode 21, in which Richard will be much more positive and attempt to uh, show me what there is to love about Early to Bed. Can't you grasp the situation? Now, before we dive into the episode proper, it's time for a quick thank you. And today, I want to thank all of my Italian listeners, as during January, the Laurel and Hardy blogcast reached number two in the Italian Film History podcast charts, which I was absolutely thrilled about. So, a thousand thanks. Or I should probably say, grazie mie ascoltatori italiani. Thank you also to all those of you who have been signing up to my free mailing list. Uh, The number of subscribers is growing daily, and this is the best way to stay in touch with new releases from this podcast, from my blogs, new designs from the Blogheads merchandise range, and of of course, uh, news about my forthcoming book, Laurel and Hardy Silence. Now, just to confirm, I I will not be inundating you with spammy emails. Uh, I'll only be sending out occasional and relevant mailings direct to your inbox. If this is all new to you and you'd like to sign up, then just visit my website at www.blog-heads.com. Blogheads.com. Okay, now that I've attended to all the important things, let's move on to today's audio blog. And today's film and focus is Early to Bed. It was filmed the 21st of May to the 25th of June, 1928. It was released on the 6th of October, 1928, produced by Hal Roach, directed by Emmett J. Flynn, and photographed by George Stevens. The main cast, Stan Laurel, Oliver Hardy, and Buster the Dog. 
And we begin with a quote from Exhibitors Herald and Moving Picture World from the 12th of May, 1928. I am more than pleased with the distribution of our comedies achieved by Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer during the first year of our association, cabled Hal Roach from the far side of the globe. Mr Roach is now on his way New Yorkward, concluding a round-the-world tour which he and Mrs Roach started last fall. His cablegram inaugurating the second year of production for MGM distribution continues. Never in the history of our organisation have we been so enthusiastic over the outlook as at the present time. During the year, our distribution has reached a new high point, which we scarcely believed possible. Roach comedies are now playing in more theatres than ever before. In setting the pace for quality comedies, our product is constantly being improved, and during the coming season, I now promise MGM and the exhibitors of the world the finest two-reel comedies that money, and plenty of it, can produce. In May 1928, Mr and Mrs Hal Roach, the intrepid explorers, returned from their worldwide tour. During a short stop-off in New York, the couple attended a showing of Buster Keaton's Steamboat Bill Jr., released on the 12th of May. The occasion was mentioned in an article featured in Screenland, October 1928. Quote, Last fall, Hal Roach, the Columbus of the comedy screen, set out on a world voyage of discovery, accompanied by his beautiful young wife. The principal reason for the tour, or at least one of the most important, was to be a search for a new type of feminine screen player. For quite some time, the executives of the Roach Fun Factory had realised their need of a piquant, small, somewhat devilish leading lady of a distinct type of appeal. Roach, who has probably discovered as much high-caliber screen material as any other comedy producer, persuaded his aides to permit him, during his trip around the globe, to keep his eyes peeled for the elusive type needed. And he returned as far as New York without ever having been in danger of making the desired discovery. While in the metropolis, en route home, he chanced to be present at a screening of Steamboat Bill Jr. and was elated at the charming work of the petite leading lady of the picture. End quote. Thus, Marion Byron joined the ranks of Roach's All-Stars. It's interesting to note the studio executive stating that they needed a piquant, small, somewhat devilish leading lady for some time. Yet, they inexplicably had just given Edna Marion, Viola Richard and Dorothy Coburn the boot. Curiouser and curiouser. The article that this is taken from includes a lovely publicity shot of Marion Byron with Stan and Babe on the set of Early to Bed. The accompanying caption declares that she'd been hired to support the boys' pictures, but sadly this never materialised. Byron did, however, appear in all-star comedies with Max Davidson and notably teamed with Anita Garvin in an attempt to create a female Laurel and Hardy. The Byron-Garvin series lasted for just three films, one of which, A Pair of Tights, was initially scripted to include a cameo by Stan and Babe, but the boys' footage was cut from the final version. Hal Roach's global adventure seemed to have been a great success. The Roaches had saved their marriage, the studio hadn't fallen apart in the boss's absence, and now it was time to head back to Culver City. From New York, the home leg of Roach's journey went first to Chicago, before the three-day transcontinental rail trip to California. A photographer from the Exhibitors Herald World snapped the couple upon their arrival in Chicago, then at the termination of their trip, they were photographed for motion picture news being welcomed back to Tinseltown by a posse of little rascals from the Our Gang comedies. Back at the studio, Roach arrived to find the Laurel and Hardy unit busy filming their latest picture, Early to Bed. Although the photo in Screenland proves that Marion Byron visited the boys on set, she does not appear in the picture. And neither, for that matter, does anyone else. 
Early to Bed is one of those very rare films in which Stan and Babe are the only actors on screen throughout the entire film, the only other picture equally devoid of any supporting cast being 1930s Bratz. The absence of supporting players is not the only reason that Early to Bed is distinct from the rest of the Laurel and Hardy canon. The picture has a very mixed reputation and is arguably one of, if not the most, divisive of the boys' films. The main reason for this being the abandonment of the established Stan and Ollie characters. The opening scene is pretty standard fare and it places the viewer in comfortably familiar territory. We find the boys sitting on a park bench with their dog Buster. Stan has a perfectly vacant expression. The lights are on but nobody's home. Ollie opens a letter that reveals he has inherited his late uncle's fortune and is now rich. Stan is happy for his friend, but quickly bursts into tears wondering what will become of him now that his friend is off to live a new life. Ollie shows concern, gives it some thought, and happily declares that he will take Stan to be his butler. Now this is a lovely demonstration of the Stan and Ollie relationship, but from here the picture goes in a completely new direction. The rest of the film sees subservient butler Stan trying to get his drunken employer Ollie to bed at 3am following a boozy night out on the town, and this is where many fans' opinions begin to split. Firstly, there is the issue of the sudden change in the boys' relationship. Ollie has appointed Stan as his butler to keep the friendship together, but now Stan has become deferential, addressing Ollie as Sir, and, and that just doesn't feel right. Ollie's drunken behaviour towards Stan is also difficult to accept. It begins reasonably playfully at the door as Ollie plays a practical joke on Stan and shuts him out, but it quickly falls into a very tiresome and cruel continued bullying of his longtime friend. Although it's all done in drunken jest, it's in contrast to a standard Laurel Hardy comedy. Usually, Stan would eventually get his own back with a poke in the eye or a kick in the shin, or Ollie would fall foul of his own conceitedness and topple from his high horse. This always restored the balance, ensuring that neither man had the upper hand or a higher status than the other. Sadly, there is no such equality here for Mr Laurel. Stan knows his place, and Ollie abuses his position as Stan's superior. Ultimately, after many cruel pranks and incidents, Stan breaks down into tears. However, this is not the confused and childish cry that we're familiar with. This feels different. This is the cry of a friend whose will and heart have been broken. Arguably, the low light of the film is when, after having been woken from sleep by Ollie creeping into his bedroom and emptying a pitcher of cold water onto him, Stan declares that he resigns and will leave in the morning. Ollie's drunken merriness instantly changes here, and his face straightens as he tells Stan with some malice, You can't leave. I won't let you. Babe leaves and slams the door behind him. Now that exchange couldn't be further from Laurel and Hardy. The following morning, Ollie laughs in Stan's face when he's presented with Stan's bill for services rendered, and it's some relief when Stan finally sees Red. Having taken as much as he can stand, Stan runs amok throughout Ollie's palatial home, breaking everything he can lay his hands on. One gag that is worthy of mention is the finale. Ollie hides from Stan in a vast ornamental water fountain adorned with stone facsimiles of Ollie's head. Each head is spurting water into the pool, and Ollie replaces one of these heads with his own, taking mouthfuls of water and spitting it out. Stan is baffled by this, and when Ollie runs out of water, he continually bangs him on the head to start the flow again. Eventually, Ollie breaks and begins laughing at the silliness of it all. Notable commentator William K. Everson considered this one of the most captivating routines they ever did. 
It's undoubtedly an elaborate gag, but not an original one. The gag first appeared in another Roach comedy, 1927's Should Men Walk Home, starring Mabel Normand, and featuring Babe Hardy in a supporting role. The original scripted ending had the dog also hiding in the fountain, his head next to Ollie's, equally terrified of Stan's rage. Stan spots Ollie hiding and spitting water in the fountain and hits him over the head with a tomahawk, knocking him unconscious. The script then has Stan dragging Ollie upstairs and unwittingly out of an open window, fade to black. The finale that made it into theatres ended with Ollie offering the hand of friendship to Stan, saying, let's forgive and forget and be pals again. Stan submits, smiles and shakes hands, but Ollie pushes him backwards into the water, laughing uproariously. So, the question one might raise is how did the boys come to steer so far off course in this picture? Since the official pairing of Stan and Babe in the second hundred years, the boys had been developing and honing the Stan and Ollie characters, and a successful formula had organically emerged. So why change it? A few possible reasons or causes could be considered. Firstly, and perhaps most obviously, a completely new director, Emmett J. Flynn, was brought in to take the helm. Flynn certainly had a decent reputation with an article in Moving Picture World, 18th of September 1926, describing him as one of Hollywood's best-known directors. However, his previous work mainly consisted of westerns and costume dramas, with not a single comedy in sight. Hal Roach must have considered Flynn's talents worthy of a prominent position in his studio, though, as an article in Variety, 30th of May 1928, stated... Emmett Flynn is to direct a series of Stan Laurel and Babe Hardy comedies for Hal Roach. In addition, Motion Picture News, 16th of June 1928, ran an article entitled Roach Studio Staff for New Season Complete, attaching newly signed Flynn's name to the directorial team on Laurel and Hardy, Charlie Chase and Max Davidson comedies. It's clear, therefore, that the director's involvement with Laurel and Hardy's latest picture was not intended to be a one-off. Still, in actuality, it turned out to be the only film Emmett Flynn would direct for the Roach Studio. Perhaps the following article, featured in Picture Play magazine, May 1928, offers the likely reason why his tenure on The Lot of Fun was so short-lived. Quote, A certain amount of ironic justice occasionally is meted out in Hollywood. A few years ago, Emmett Flynn was one of the foremost directors in Hollywood, having made a reputation with a Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's Court, and his brother, Ray Flynn, was his assistant. Emmett quickly won the reputation of being upstage and hard to get along with, though his brother was contrastingly obliging and agreeable. Consequently, it has afforded some satisfaction to a good many of their associates to witness the parallel careers of the brothers Flynn. Emmett, since his last contract expired, has not worked in many months. His brother, meanwhile, by industry and application, has become a director and is said to be advancing rapidly. Incidentally, he is a director of Fox Pictures, the same organisation which failed to renew his big brother's last contract. End quote. It's not hard to believe that a new director, projecting a superior attitude, who was not easy to get along with, would have struggled to integrate into the family atmosphere of the Roach studio. Supporting this, there appears to have been problems within the crew during filming of Early to Bed, with Flynn replacing cinematographer Len Powers and his two assistants with George Stevens, Jack Roach and E.L. White six days into the eight-day shoot. Something was not right. Once filming concluded, Emmett Flynn exited stage left. 
Now, whether Flynn was responsible for Laurel and Hardy's complete change of direction in this film is unclear, as the initial story idea would have been developed as usual by Stan and the writing team. However, what is certain is that three weeks after Flynn washed his hands of the project, Leo McCary brought the boys back for three days of reshoots. Importantly, among the new footage added was the unscripted first scene with the boys on the park bench, arguably the only recognisable Laurel and Hardy moment in the entire picture. Randy Scretvet also suggests that one final and notable McCary alteration was likely the film's conclusion. Having the boys begin the film as our two recognisable friends, and then at the very end seeing them shaking hands and making up could well have been McCary's 11th hour attempt to salvage the film and maintain the established Laurel and Hardy brand. For many fans though, it was too little, too late. In terms of performances, Stan and Babe carry the film incredibly well. Babe's performance is very convincing and the change in character provides him with an opportunity to show off some different acting skills. It's also quite pleasant to see Ollie looking much more dapper than usual, with his hair slicked back and sporting a blazer and a straw boater. If Hardy's acting performance is convincing, so too is Stan's. One can't help but feel enormous sympathy for Laurel's character as his cries seem very heartfelt and the sense of relief one feels when Stan finally retaliates and ends the friendship is considerable, proving just how far off the mark this film actually is. That the film provokes this reaction is precisely why so many fans are turned off from this picture. Stan and Ollie's relationship is one of Hollywood's most unique and beautiful creations and is the reason that the popularity of their comedies remains consistently strong almost a hundred years after its creation. As Glenn Mitchell points out, the film's mixed reputation reflects the seriousness with which admirers take the team's relationship. However, not all fans feel negatively towards this picture. Author Charles Barr described Early to Bed as their simplest film and one of their best. And William K. Everson said, Although a lesser Laurel and Hardy, Early to Bed contains good gags, amusing titles, and an interesting variation on the usual, usual relationship between them. Following the film's original 1928 release, critics and exhibitors were also divided in their opinions. This review from the Motion Picture News, 28th of July, 1928. Laurel and Hardy have a fairly humorous picture in this one, which undoubtedly would have been better had the attempt not been made to cram it too full of comedy. It is just one knockabout episode after another, with some of them funny and others not so funny. Had the action been cut down to a little more moderate speed and some of the sillier sequences eliminated, the best of the gags would have registered better. Uh, this next one, uh, from the film Daily, 12th of August, 1928. This is one of the best of the Stan Laurel Oliver Hardy series. Uh, from the Exhibitors Herald, a moving picture world, 2nd of November, 28. Uh, I have run better from these stars, but would not call this one poor by any means. That was from the Central Theatre, Selkirk, Manitoba. Um, and then this larger one from Motion Picture News, 3rd of November, 28. Laurel and Hardy. Well, that's enough said. Exhibitors don't need to be advised how good these babies can be. Here, the two Hal Roach funsters have an extremely simple story to work with. Their material, when boiled down, really amounts to practically nothing. And yet, they are funny. They get the laughs and strengthen the thought that they are the best comedy team in present-day movies, whether shorts or features. It is all a matter of quality, gentlemen, both in Stan's and Oliver's performances, in the clever direction and the good tone of the material. Hardy shows he is a more adept comic than his companion in this one. Laurel seems limited to a vacuous expression and a crybaby look of injured dignity. 
On the other hand, Hardy gives evidence of a real roisterer whose moods change rapidly, whose bag of facial expressions, gestures and general comical antics is fuller than Laurel's. But both are good, emphatically so. The story only has three characters, the amiable pair and their dog. But it carries an impressive veneer of humour and easily deserves the recommendation, good for any house. And then finally from the Exhibitors Herald and Moving Picture World from the 15th of December 1928. This should rate as a novelty since these two big time comedians are the only ones in it. Already as expected, MGM has started to capitalise a good thing, but has also started to cheapen these productions. Better watch out or they'll be rating with Stern Brothers. <laughs> that was from the Kenwood Theatre in Chicago. Even though the creative decisions behind the production of Early to Bed are now shrouded in the midst of time, it was the last Laurel and Hardy film in which the boys detoured from their established Stan and Ollie characters. Indeed, Stan became very protective of their distinctive identities and did not want them to be diluted or altered in any way. For instance, he was very apprehensive about the suggestion that they should appear in comic operettas, in costumes other than their trademark derbies and suits, believing it would affect the public's perception of their screen personas. He needn't have worried. If nothing else, Early to Bed is valuable for proving that the greatest and most endearing attribute that Laurel and Hardy possessed, and the thing that needed to be protected at all cost, was their relationship. It didn't matter what they wore, all that mattered was that they were united. Two minds without a single thought. And joining us now to discuss today's film in focus, and anything else besides, is returning guest and friend of the blogcast, expert and author of Laurel and Hardy, The Magic Behind the Movies and the Laurel and Hardy Movie Scripts. It is, of course, our good friend, Randy Scredvet. Hello. How are you, sir? Are you all right? I'm fine, I'm fine. I see you have a, uh, a photograph from early to bed over your shoulder. Yes, yes. Oh, it's only just printed. It's only just a little print off. It's nothing ah, official. <laughs> very good. But uh, before we get going, I have to share a, a wonderful boon uh, that I have recently acquired. Uh, oh. Thank, thanks to Mr. Ban, and I'm kind of sorry that he's not here because I could yes. uh, thank him publicly, but I will do so anyway. Uh, I owe him. We all owe him a, a t tremendous debt of gratitude. First of all, for saving the 35 millimeter materials. Yeah. Uh, uh, but for many other things. But most recently, uh, about a month and a half ago, he alerted me to an auction uh, of uh, Laurel and Hardy and other Hal Roach scripts. And as you know, I did a book of oh, yes. Laurel and Hardy scripts and have been on the lookout for more to do another volume. Yeah. Well, <laughs> this little auction house in Ohio uh, had a number of Hal Roach scripts and um, I probably overbid on them, but I still got them for a relative pittance compared to what they have gone for uh, in auctions past. So uh, I got about 80 Hal Roach scripts. Um, there were about 30 scripts for the shorts, about 21 of which I have not used in books before. And, wow. there, and there are five of the features. Uh, so uh, let's see, uh, Fra Diavolo, uh, Bonnie Scotland, uh, a partial script for uh, our relations. I wish that were complete because I would love to know where those stills of them in the white suits and in the traffic jam and yes. shaving on board the ship, where does that fit into the movie? <laughs> I have yes. no idea. Uh, yeah. The script that I have is just the last 15 minutes or so, and it's pretty much right. as in the film, sadly. Okay. But, um, and then what else? Uh, uh, oh, Swiss Miss, 
which has all the lyrics for the scene where they were demonstrating the mouse traps. You know, oh, was a, brilliant! There was a musical number that was mostly cut. Well, <laughs> all the lyrics are in the script. Oh, fantastic! A- and it also explains the uh, the bomb and the piano gag that Roach uh, had cut out. So, right. So we'll have that uh, puzzle piece uh, answered, and great, also great, great. Uh, a at Oxford and Saps at Sea. So, so all of those That's are amazing. there now. Now, most of the scripts are fairly brief. However, uh, Jeannie McPherson, who was a, an outsider a scriptwriter, and I don't know that she ever did anything else for Hal Roach, this is the script for Fra Diavolo. <laughs> wow, good grief. That is comprehensive. This is huge. And it's backwards, but, but it says Mr. Hardy on the top there. Oh, yes. Yes, yes, yes. So, so I presume this must have been the script that Mr. Hardy... Uh, looked at and probably oh my goodness, probably man. wanted to faint when he saw all of this. Uh, <laughs> Laurel and Hardy are are, are Laurelo and Hardio uh, in in this script, and I, I have not gone through it yet, but I'm sure that it deviates tremendously, or that there's a, a great deal of other material because I remember when I talked to Bert Jordan in April of 1980, he he when I brought that film up, he sort of shook his head and said. We had to cut a lot out of that one. <laughs> wow. So I think that script probably corroborates that. Yeah. Then we then we have this. This is more likely what they're like. This is a script for any old port, which is very different because what we know as the uh, uh, first reel of the film was actually the second reel of the script. And there was all that stuff right. with the, uh, the the ostrich. Yes. And, yeah. everything else. and and sadly, I think it would have been a much, much better film had they stuck yeah. to the script. Uh, the, yeah, I think you're probably right. The boxing match is nowhere to be found in in this script. It ends when they send Walter Long going over the uh, pier. Yes, so that's interesting. Uh, what else? Here's one for Toad in a Hole and uh, uh, County Hospital. And oh, this is one called Tickets for Two, which was never made. Uh, oh wow! It it has some of the elements of Busybodies. It has the bandsaw gag at the end from Busybodies, and they right. do work at a lumber mill at the very beginning of it. But they uh, take the day off to go to a boxing match, and they spend most of the day in a parking lot because their car gets uh, wedged between other cars, <laughs> and it's not terribly funny. You can see right. why they didn't make it, but it is <laughs> an, an unproduced Laurel and Hardy short. Uh, yeah, great. So, what else? Perfect day. Uh, 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 going bye bye. Um, what else do we have here? Uh, oh, a, 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 a supplemental script for uh, the Midnight Midnight Patrol. And I hope I find a, a copy of the main script again. I saw one back in 1980. Uh, right. Helpmates. Uh, oh goodness gracious! Uh, 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 thicker than water. The fixer uppers. Um, okay. This is the script. I've never seen this before. The script for the Music Box. Oh yes, and if you'll notice, there's there's a, a crazy guy on the internet who keeps saying that these steps for hats off <laughs> are different from the ones for the music box, yes. and we have shown him photographic evidence and and uh, all sorts of documentation that prove beyond a doubt that they are the same steps. And here in the <laughs> script it says, uh, Stan, do we have to go up there again, babe? What do you mean again? Uh, and and Stan says. Don't you remember when we went up there with a washing machine? <laughs> That's There's it. a direct reference to Hats Off in the <laughs> script for the music box. That's and great. Babe says, oh, yes, well, we can profit by that experience. Now we know how to go about it. <laughs> so there's a direct reference, and the, I showed it to the guy on Facebook, and his comment was, script must be fake. <laughs> so my attitude is just ignore him. Just one of the lower elements. 
one of the lower elements. I knew you were going to say that. So anyway, I just I want to let you be in on all of this fabulous stuff that Wonderful. I have acquired. What <laughs> a treasure trove! Some what some of these trove. some of these are from Charlie Hall's collection. Oh wow! Because they have his writing on them. I you know I have the books by Dean McCown and John Ulla, yeah. which reproduce yeah. some of his letters, and so I, I recognize the uh, handwriting. And uh, there are some other things too. There's some scripts for Leon Errol and Edgar Kennedy RKO shorts that Charlie was in, and right. okay. those are here. And also uh, a bunch of original still. So anyway, I'm thrilled beyond words to have this stuff, but. The thing is, anytime I'm blessed with these things, I want to use them because there are thousands of people who are interested in them. So, yeah, absolutely. So oh, that, what a fantastic haul. So I, I mean, I've been busily typing these scripts because I have to get them into a Word document to use as, yeah. a, as a book. So that's yeah, all I've yeah. been doing the last couple of weeks is just typing up scripts. Oh, but I'm, bless I'm you. having the time of my life doing it. So I can imagine. Uh, yes, yeah, I can well imagine. Yeah, it's so the best one you can so have on your own. So so, stay tuned. I'm, I'm hoping to have it, uh, have that, and a, a book on Babes in Toyland both ready in time for the August uh, uh, convention in Albuquerque. Oh, okay. I was going to ask you about uh, that because I, I so, thought on them, the last time we, well, one of the last times we spoke, you were hoping for sort of Thanksgiving for your Babes in Toyland. Well, <laughs> yeah, definitely. That's uh, that would be a, a time to have them ready. So, Fantastic. so all right, on to early to bed. <laughs> Well, I'm. Uh, uh, in fact, I was going to get. If you will excuse me, I wanted to get the Charles Barr book. Oh uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Hang on a second. Yes, in hardcover yet? Okay. Uh, I've never seen a hardcover. Yeah, I have a. I had a paperback that I got when I was a kid, and somewhere I found a hardcover version of it. Oh, that's nice. This is the only edition I've ever seen from. University of California, and I presume it was and I, it was published in England originally. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, but I know that he uh, he's the only person I have ever seen who really gives a rave review to Early to Bed. Yeah. Then we should have that just for the record. It's, it says here, yeah, he gives it he gives it four stars, the highest rating. Early to Bed is an extraordinary tour de force made in 1928. One isn't surprised to find it generally written off between then and now as uninventive and uncharacteristic. They don't play their normal roles, but are master and servant. The film has few gags, and even these are mostly very direct, scarcely gags at all. Uh, let's see. Then he. The film consists entirely of their relationship. There are no other actors. Ollie, Ollie has recognized that, that he wants deep down that they will be pals. He has forgotten already the damage that Stan the servant has done to his house. Well, I wish I believed that. <laughs> I'm not so sure that Ollie is chastened at the end because he does push Stan into the fountain and hit him yes. on the head with the, the shovel. So I don't know. Yeah. Um, now, I have, I have watched the film three or four times in the last couple of days. And I've watched both the, uh, the British DVD and the American image DVD, which has better uh image quality the the british one looks very ragged uh and I, if i had access to a working super 8 projector i suspect that my print that i got in the early 70s from blackhawk films would probably look better still it really uh i'm, I'm very nervous about the uh, the state of the silent pictures yeah, yeah. I, I'm, I'm glad that uh, serge bromberg of lobster films in france is working on uh, a Laurel and Hardy preservation uh, program for the silence, 
and yeah, they will start coming out in a couple of years when those films start going into the public domain. So yeah, who knows Brilliant. in uh, in twenty twenty five or twenty six we may have a a super abundance of Laurel and Hardy uh, <laughs> silence on Blu ray. I mean, oh, if only let's, that would be lovely. It could happen. On to Willie to bed. Yeah. Um, um, thank you, thank you so much for coming on uh, to talk about this, Randy. Oh. I mean, initially, uh, a, I'm thrilled that you want to be part of the show again. So that's brilliant. I'm, I'm really glad about that. But also, I'm really intrigued because you you sort of singled out this uh, this film <laughs> that you wanted to talk about it. So I'm yeah. really interested to see what uh, you know what you've got to say on it. Now, I mean, sort of full disclosure from the start, I I'm not a fan of Early to Bed, um, and I know you're not so, so much of a fan of it either. So I'm going to try and play the neutral if I can. Yeah. Um, there's not much point. There's a both beating up on it um, yeah. and I have to say I've looked I've watched it again a couple of times preparing for this and and I wasn't as um what's the word angry <laughs> yes angry that's it yeah uh, as I was the first yeah. time but yeah. um yeah I think I was probably a little bit more prepared for it but uh, but yeah so uh, Richard Ban is going to come on as well he's because I know he is a fan of it so for yeah. balance we're going to have both aspects well which is great as, as I say I have watched it three or four times in the last couple of days and I too have had a a better reaction to it than I usually have had I've got to say that the British uh, DVD that's on the big 21 DVD box set with the with the uh, Bohunks uh, music score um, that does add immeasurably to the film uh, and uh, um, even the score that's on the American DVD which is cobbled together from the music tracks for uh, Wrong Again and That's My Wife and uh, Liberty um, even that adds a lot, you know, because when I first saw the film, I was watching it alone on Super 8 in my room, uh, you know, my print from Blackhawk Films with no musical accompaniment. And it, uh, that's not the way that the film was ever presented publicly. It always had some sort of musical accompaniment. But, you know, it seemed very slow and very sad. And um, uh, I, I think I have had over the years a, a bad reaction to it really and unfairly, I think, um, not so much because of the film, but because of my own life experiences. Uh, uh, if you, well, my father was a wonderful man and he supported me all his life in every way possible. His one failing was that on Friday night and Saturday, he would have too much to drink. Okay. And, and this happened from my time of conscious thought until I was about 21 or 22. And then he finally settled down. And I don't think he drank at all the last 40 years of his life. But, right. but when you're 12, 13, 14 years old, it is not a good experience to have someone who is... He was never violent, but he was mm. stupid. You know what I mean? Yes. Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. like Ollie. He's he, yeah. he, he, never violent or angry, but just you, you were trying to get him to bed. So he would just, you know, settle down and not be a problem. And I was an only child and I wasn't going to leave my mother alone in the house. So basically I was trapped on weekends with a man who was drunk and out of control. So my response to Ollie uh, having had too much to drink and wanting to play and be wacky and wild is not laughter. It, it conjures up bad memories for me. And, yeah. and, and so, like I say, uh, that's not the film's fault. You know, yeah. it's just the way that I react to it. And I suspect a fair number of other people react to it that way too. Um, well, yeah, I, I'm one of them, to be honest. I mean, yeah. I, I, um, 
I'm I'm teetotal. I've never I've never um, drunk alcohol. Um, oh, not, good for you. Not for any not for any kind of religious reasons. It just made me feel sick. Yeah, <laughs> but, yes. my, oh, yes. but all my but all my you, all you my haven't missed did. anything. <laughs> no, 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 and I'm a lot richer for it as well. Um, but, yeah, exactly. But, but all my but all my friends did. So everybody around me was getting drunk, and yeah. I was the only one who wasn't. And yeah. I think exactly it's strange you say that. Exactly the same. I I I had this kind of repulsion when I saw Ollie in that in that situation. Yeah, and and it just yeah it put me straight off. Because because yeah. it was almost um, too kind of too realistic, almost. Yeah, it, I, um, I, I will say this: that that uh, Mr. Hardy, as always, gives a magnificent performance. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, yeah. the more yeah. I watch Laurel and Hardy, the more I marvel at him as an actor, not just as a comedian, but as an act. I mean, he's for me, he's right up there with Spencer Tracy as just a brilliant, believable, genuine, real actor who inhabits the character. You know, this, that's one that's one reason I could never enjoy Jerry Lewis, because he could never stop performing and be the character in a story. He was always a nightclub comedian trying to break out, you know, the nightclub comedian was always trying to break out of the movie. You know, he was always crossing his eyes for no good reason. You know, Jerry, what would you do if in City Lights, at the end of City Lights, Chaplin all of a sudden went, hey, hey, hey. You know, you would you would, would scream, right? Well, stop doing yes. that! Stop doing yes. that, Jerry. Be the character, you know. Yes. So, and and yes. there's never that problem with Laurel and Hardy. They absolutely commit to being those people, you know. And and it's it's so wonderful. In for example, in Saps at Sea, after Doctor Finlayson has left, they're just sort of sitting there in the apartment. And they're so comfortable in those characters and with each other. You almost feel like. You know, did they know the camera was on? You know, they're, yeah. they're so real at that point. Um, yeah, yeah. And, you know, very few actors ever achieve that kind of believability. <clears throat> so, and like I say, in early to bed, there's certainly no flaw with the performances. It's just, uh, there, there's one scene in particular that, that really bothers me. That's when Stan, you know, he's been, they've been wrestling on the floor and Stan breaks down and cries. And it's, yes. not, it's not just the momentary for, for two seconds. I mean, he's yeah. really crying. Yes. And Stan and Ollie tries to, you know, reach out to him and he waves the hand away. And, and then there's a shot of Buster, the dog, running away in fear. <laughs> yeah, that's and, right, yeah. you know, Stan has just said, you know, I've had it. And it, this scene goes on for quite a while. And I just go, who thought this was funny? Yes, you know, that's did right. They, yeah, did they forget forget for a moment that this was a? I mean, I understand them wanting to have some human uh, yeah. uh, uh, believability Pathos. into it, but yes. but yeah. wow, and, yeah, you know. And uh, uh, I, I, yeah, I think the, the the one that really sort of gets to me more is that there is definitely that one. Yeah. Um, and you say, you know, he, the the cry is a cry of somebody whose heart has been broken and whose will has been broken ultimately. Yeah. But then the the one where he Ollie comes into the bedroom and tips the water down. Yeah. Well. And he's all and he's all laughing. He's all, you know, it's all a big it's yeah. all a big drunken joke. Yeah. But then except he's Stan sober says, at that point. He's sober at that point. Exactly. And then, but he's but he's still having a laugh. And then yeah. and then Stan wakes up and. Says, says right i'm leaving in the morning and yeah. ollie's face just changes yeah and he's quite malicious so he says no you're not i yeah. won't let you go yeah. Anymore. And yeah that that really is not laurel and hardy for no me. that's where i really struggle with it no that's that's uh abusive yeah 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 and, right. and that gag that you mentioned there's there, there's a couple of risque gags you know at the very beginning when they're on the park bench Ollie has gotten this. God only knows why. How the mailman knew how to contact them. <laughs> they don't mention yeah. that they've already got the envelope at the beginning of the film. 
Yeah. I will tell you in a, in a, in a moment, my fantasy reworking of early to bed and how I think it okay. would have worked. But anyway, they're, they're reading the letter and Ollie gets the good news. And then he looks up because all is wonderful and sunshine. And then Stanlin looks up and gets something in his eye. Now, yes. happily, they don't elaborate on that, but we can assume that it was a, an avian contribution. Uh, <laughs> Yep. <laughs> so that's that's sort of risque gag number one. Risque gag number two is it, when you see the shot of Stan in the bed, you see Ollie's leg and you see this little stream <laughs> pointing from <laughs> the same general direction. And Stan, his his expression is he's not really doing what I think he's doing, is he? And you that gag yeah. shows up again in I think it's uh, they go boom. Yes, and, and yeah. a similar one in in uh, Leave Them Laughing. So you know they weren't above doing a little funny <laughs> humor every once in a while. No, uh, no. A, another thing about early to bed is we forget about prohibition and the fact that uh, Mr. Hardy carrying a load of champagne was uh, in violation of not just a city or state law; it was a violation of a constitutional amendment, <laughs> you know, forbidding yes, all use of alcohol. Now, how they ever thought that was going to work, I don't know, and it certainly didn't. But yeah. you know, that that sort of makes Laurel and Hardy the Cheech and Chong of their day, really. You know, <laughs> you know, illicit substances being a, a source of humor. Yeah. So yeah, there's true. that element too. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, but it is it, it's a very it's a very strange change of direction isn't it yeah. from from I, I don't mean by the director because obviously that's a, that's another well that's a whole but, that's another story yeah uh, yeah but, the, the Emmett Flynn story but just as kind of as as before we get into the Emmett Flynn story because he, he he obviously sounds like quite a character himself but um, <laughs> what what, what, I, what I can't kind of understand is the surely the story structure the show, the story would have been written by Stan and the Gagmen you know that wouldn't have been an Emmett Flynn construction surely uh, this is Emmett Flynn's only uh film at the Hal Roach Studios I suspect yeah. he was uh one of Hal Roach's polo buddies or they they knew each other from the Uplifters Club or some you know Hal Roach was a member of every club in the world uh, socially and I suspect that that's how Emmett Flynn came to work for Roach uh, his life was starting to go into a tailspin at this point. And uh, I think, I don't know if he had been fired from Fox, but anyway, uh, he was born in Denver, which is where a lot of Hal Roach associates come from. Uh, Richard Courier and Bob McGowan and prop man uh, uh, Bob Sanders, all from Denver. Uh, but anyway, he had been sort of a wunderkind director because when he was in his early 20s, he was making these elaborate, expensive costume dramas for Fox uh, feature films, you know, and then uh, all of a sudden there's sort of a break and then he makes this one two real comedy, the only one he ever made and the only thing he ever made at Roaches. And I suspect that a lot of the footage that we see in the final film is actually by Leo McCary. Uh, the script did not have the opening scene with, at the park bench, which is my favorite scene in the film. Yeah, mine too. Uh, yeah. I, I, I love Buster the dog and I, yeah. I don't know for sure, but I suspect that Tony Campanera uh, who took care of the animals at the Roach Lot probably owned Buster, but but he's adorable anyway, and he he you, you feel sorry for him because you know he he hides from Ollie in Stan's bed, you know when when Stan goes to bed he he looks under the covers and there's Buster, he doesn't want to be anywhere near Ollie, you know he doesn't want to be in his own bed, so you know it's, there's another note of pathos. Um, anyway, I was going to say that I think McCary directed a lot of it. There's that that shot. When Stan tastes the cake that he's made for Ollie, and that yeah. and the, that in the script is the opening scene. 
is, okay. is, is Stan asleep waiting for Ollie to come home. And it says, you know, here's your birthday cake. Uh, uh, there's a shot of him saving the cake. It's a long close up, and he just sort of enjoys the taste of it. And that's something you find in uh, Wrong Again and in uh, uh, We Fall Down, the, the, the ones that McCary. McCary was very fond of these long takes where not too much happens. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> he really yeah. took it to extremes, you know, the idea yes. of slowing everything down. And uh, I remember going through the 1928 date book. Uh, that they probably bought at the drugstore, which had all the uh, information about what was shooting on what given day. And it indicated that uh, Emmett Flynn, you'll see it in full in, in Magic Behind the Movies. I can't remember it precisely, but uh, he shot on a certain day with a certain crew. Then there was a break. Then he came back and it was an entirely different crew, which yeah. that, that raises a question right there. Why yes. did they not come back? And then there's yeah. a break of a couple of weeks, and then McCary comes back and shoots new footage for oh, th- three, three days worth of reshoots. Three or four days, yeah, yeah, yeah. Just go, That's right. Hmm. Why yeah. do they have to do that? You know, something's not right. And and I suspect also that McCary added not only the opening scene, but also the the finish of the film in the script is very unsatisfying. Uh, uh, Ollie uh, Stan drags Ollie out of the fountain. Now, I don't think this was even physically possible. This happens a lot in the scripts. Things that they imagine, <laughs> yeah. the, the, the annoying uh, encumbrances of physical reality uh, prevent them from doing these things that they imagine. <laughs> you know, yes. the, the material yes. world is really uncooperative a lot of times <laughs> when you're making a movie. You know, I made yeah. movies from the time I was in elementary school all the way through college where I actually got credit for it. And uh it's a very helpful thing to have done if you're going to write about movies, because it makes you understand that the movie that you envision when you're typing up your brilliant script is, is not going to be in any way, shape or form the movie that you wind up with, because you are going to have to deal with weather and the availability of actors and props and sets and just uh, physical reality. Like for example, Hitchcock, when he made spellbound, he wanted a shot where Ingrid Bergman is here and you see Leo G. Carroll's hand holding a gun here. And he wanted her to go away and he wanted the hand to turn around and go boom and commit suicide. The, the problem is focal length did not cooperate and he could not get the hand that size and Ingrid Bergman that size and have them both be in focus. So they wound up making a wooden hand, a big oversized wooden hand that they could place <laughs> farther back and have it be in focus and be the same <laughs> size. And then they, really? just, then they just turned this wooden hand and had a, had a, had a, they, they painted in on every, every print of the film, four frames of a red flash of the gunfire. Oh, wow. Because they couldn't get the thing to, to pull the trigger. Yeah, so they, they suggested it with the color. <laughs> you see the Hitchcock had to do that because the, the physical reality and focal length of the lens did not cooperate. So you, you find that all the time. So anyway, in the script, Stan pulls Ollie out of the fountain and drags him up the stairs. He's he's uh, He's been not cold with the, the poker. And uh, just as in Music Box, um, when they go up too many steps, uh, thinking that they're still on yeah. the stairway, uh, yeah. Stan does this and they and they both fall out of then they cut outside the house and you see them both falling out of the second story window. And no, that's, that's right. the end. Ollie, what? I can't make it. Don't weaken now. 
We've only got a couple more steps. Now both together. Heave-ho! Well, that's yeah. not very satisfying. And also physically probably not possible. And yeah. I suspect that, that McCary, um, with his strong sense of story construction and wanting to to really wrap it up more satisfyingly, came up with the, you know, let's just stay at the fountain and have the resolution be there and have it be more of a reconciliation. And and as as I said at the outset, <laughs> I I wish I believed what Charles Barr believes <laughs> that that Ollie has has been chastened and has seen the light of day and yeah. that he really wants to be friends with Stan. That would be wonderful. Yeah. I just don't quite buy it. <laughs> no, I think I think if he hadn't have pushed him back in the water. Yeah. Yeah. And then then that if just stopped where they were shaking hands, yeah. we can move on to two tars. Thanks very much. Let's yes, exactly. Yes. <laughs> I, I I fully agree with you. Yes. Um, well, interesting about Emmett Flynn. Yes, um, I don't know if you've if you've seen this article or I just included it in my um, my essay. Yeah, so there's a, there was an article in uh, Picture Play magazine, May 1928, and it touches on what we've just been speaking about there. Um, <clears throat> and it says uh, a certain amount of ironic justice occasionally is meted out in Hollywood. <laughs> a few years ago. Emmett Flynn was one of the foremost directors in Hollywood, yes. having made a reputation with a Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's Court, and his brother Ray Flynn was his assistant. Mm. Emmett quickly won the reputation of being upstage and hard to get along with. Mm. Upstage, I, I find, means um, superior. I didn't know that. I had to look that up. Oh, well, uh, so. after Rich, when I talked to Richard Lane, who was in uh, Bullfighters and in The Haunting We Will Go, yeah. uh, he was talking about actors ad-libbing because he said, he said, they didn't ad lib at all on a haunting. We will go. They they hit their marks and did what they were told to. But he said on right. bullfighters when they had Malcolm St. Clair, that was entirely different. And Malcolm right. St. Clair was giving them their hand to do whatever they wanted. He said Stan directed the water fountain sequence. The script girl was going out of her mind. And he said, and he said, but they never tried to to upstage the other actors. They let the other actors like me right. uh, have their time. And he said, right. I appreciated that because other actors will do that. He said, he said, you know, that we call that upstaging. He says, literally, it means that you're in back of another guy. The up, upstage is further back. And he says, and, and we would do what we call catching flies. And you know, sometimes literally just going, you know, you know, just trying trying to do anything to distract the audience's attention from the guy who's downstage, who's supposed to be the focal point of gotcha. the sketch. And so, yeah, yeah, that's that's truly what upstaging is. Gotcha, of course. Okay. Uh, so he said, yeah, so em Emmett quickly won the reputation of being upstage uh -huh. and hard to get along with, though his brother was contrastingly obliging and agreeable. Consequently, it has afforded some satisfaction to a good many of their associates <laughs> to witness the parallel careers of the Ooh. brothers Flynn. Emmett, since his last contract expired, has not worked in many months. There it is. His brother, his brother, meanwhile, by industry and application, has become a director and is said to be advancing rapidly. Mm. Incidentally, he is a director of Fox Pictures, the same organization yeah. which failed to renew his big brother's Ooh. last contract. Oh, I wish so, I had found that. Well, so there we go. There's always there's always more pieces of the puzzle to be found, you know. That's we, right. We yeah. find what we find and we use what we use, but there will always be frustrating right. things that we wish we'd found earlier. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah, well, as I say, I suspect that he and Hal Roach had some sort of social uh, uh relationship and Roach knew that he this guy was out of a job 
and uh, let's see how you work out. Well, obviously it didn't work out. Um, um, and I, I don't know why he would have been hard to get along with. Maybe it was too much success too early. You know, that happens. Um, but his life really went into a tailspin after this. He did come back to Fox and he made two talkie features and then he made one for Universal. And that was in 1929. And that was it. That was really the end of his career. And he was still in his early in his uh, mid 30s at that point. Wow. And I think he has a, a co-writing credit on a short at some point in the early 30s. But um he made a lot of headlines, but they were for public drunkenness and for non-payment of child support. Oh, and and he wound right. up he wound up being thrown into uh, county jail, and uh, he broke out. And because he broke out, he then spent a year in San Quentin. Uh, you know, this is big time prison now. <laughs> well, uh, this is a movie script in itself. Uh, he did finally get out, and then he married another woman, but he had conveniently forgotten to divorce the first one. So, <laughs> so that was a problem. And wow. uh, anyway, he got that all straightened out. But with uh, within a few months after that, he passed away, and he was, I think, only forty four. And oh, the wow. the doctor's verdict was uh, chronic alcoholism. Oh, wow. So, uh, you know, and I don't know if it was why his directing career ended. Was it because of sound technology? I mean, that happened with some directors. I, you know, I don't know what Fred Niblo did in the talkie days. He was a big director in the silence, you know, but uh, <laughs> what happened to him? You know, uh, uh, Fairbanks had no desire to make talking pictures. He made a few, but he just did not like the new uh, format. And there, there are other there were other directors who just said, you know, forget it. Uh, it's not fun anymore. Um, so that may have been may have been his problem. But it's a sad story, and it kind of parallels Ollie. You know, when you have too much uh, free time and women and alcohol, uh, this is what happens. So <laughs> stay, stay away from John Barleycorn, uh, or or in my case, white Zinfandel wine. I learned that I can't even drink <laughs> that. Uh, I have, uh, I definitely have the predilection for alcoholism because going back a few generations, I have alcoholics on both sides of my family. So yeah. I, I know I don't want to turn that switch on in my brain. Thank you very much. So no, we'll, that is it. We'll 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 stick to uh, green tea. Thank you very much. Uh, that's a that, that, that's, that sounds safe. I've I've always said that I think I think I'm drying out for uh, some of my ancestors because <laughs> my, my my ancestors going back a few generations were from Ireland. Uh oh. Apparently apparently. I think my great grandfather used to have whiskey with his breakfast. Oh yeah, so well, I think I'm <laughs> read, read the uh, the uh, Marshall Nealon story sometime. Uh, Mickey Nealon was a, a silent era director, and right. I don't know if you've ever seen the Kevin Brownlow multi part documentary called Hollywood, which is about the silent mm. era. Yes, it's a wonderful, yeah. wonderful document. Thank God he got all those people on film. And uh, yeah. there, at one point, Adela Rogers St. John's, who was a, a writer, a columnist. Uh, she said, well, the problem with Mickey Nealon was that he was Irish. <laughs> and she said, you've got to watch the Irish. And she says, being, <laughs> being Irish myself, I can say that. And uh, <laughs> he, he ran afoul of, uh, of Demon Rum. And that's what happened to his career, too. Uh, you know, and a lot of people, Marvin Hatley told me that. He said, he said it wasn't drugs in those days. He said alcohol was the great wrecker of careers in the movies. And, you know, Marvin was actually closer to Charlie Chase than he was to Stan Laurel. Um, okay. Marvin's Marvin's prime job in the 30s, uh, in addition to making arrangements for things that Leroy Shield wrote, because Leroy Shield would just write what they call a lead sheet, just the melody, and Marvin would do the arrangements um, yeah. and get them recorded. 
but uh, he wrote songs for Charlie Chase movies. And so he was very close to Charlie, but practically every night he would have to drive Charlie home to his house on Tiger Tail Road because Charlie would have several celebratory drinks every night in his dressing room after the day's shooting was over. Uh, so he was very close to that. Uh, I, th I think Marvin was a teetotaler. He, he certainly was a health food advocate when I knew him in the 1970s. Was he? Oh, yeah. Uh, okay. he, grew, he grew most of what he ate. He had his own garden on his property. And, Fantastic. Yeah, and he, we would come over and he would say, here, this is called a sapote. It's a crossbred fruit and it has seven different seeds in it. And it was this sort of <laughs> sweet, mushy thing. And he would service that with RC Cola, which I don't know was very healthy. Uh, <laughs> it was sort of an odd combination to me, you know, health food <laughs> plus RC Cola. I yeah. don't uh, quite get that. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Good old Marvin. <laughs> Well, we, we we could do we could do a couple of, uh, of uh, shows just on Marvin Hatley. Uh, we must do that one yeah. of these days. We must yeah. do that. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. If you ever get away yeah. from the from the, from the uh, format of doing film, 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 uh, yeah. there are many other uh, subsidiary topics about Laurel and Hardy that are fascinating. Yeah. So. Oh well, yeah. I'm open to suggestions. <laughs> I mean, we, I've done I've done a couple of bonus broadcasts. I've done um, one on um, autographs, Laurel and Hardy oh. autographs, and collecting and that kind of thing. And then I did one with Bill Cassara just about Edgar Kennedy. Ah. Um, so uh, so yeah, anything yeah. like that that uh -huh. you could suggest, Randy, would be fabulous. Yeah, I'd love to do that, especially about um, about Marvin because I know you knew him very well. So that would be lovely, actually. That'd yeah. be really nice. Yeah. Uh, and maybe if we had some, um, I think you got a lovely uh, audio clip of him playing. Honolulu Baby, I think uh, it was on, on, the the, uh, on the Blu-ray, on the definitive uh, restorations, uh, that was recorded on a little, a little baby cassette player. I was astonished at the fidelity that it was able to capture. Uh, it was at one of our, it was our second Orange County tent, Unaccustomed as We Are tent banquet in 1975 at the Revere House in Tustin, California, which was a little steakhouse. And Marvin came. They had three pianos for him to choose. And he was going, ding, 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 ding. He said, that's a dead box. <laughs> ding, 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 ding. This one's okay. And then he was going, hello, 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 checking the acoustics of the room where he should put the piano. And uh, which is kind of shocking when he does it with no preparation. He just suddenly starts going, hello, hello, hello. Anyway, you know, he, he came to all the way out West Tent meetings because he felt that it was his... That was his job was to play piano before the meetings, you know. Right. Uh, and so I would always bring a tape recorder and record him playing. I have many cassette tapes of, of him uh, playing brilliant. whatever. And, of course, he would be interrupted every 20 minutes by somebody saying, how do you play the cuckoo song? And you go, well, okay. <laughs> um, but, uh, yeah, I, I Honolulu Baby and uh, Will You Be My Lovey Dovey, he did for us at that banquet. And, oh, brilliant. Um, I can hear my yeah. mother singing along on Honolulu Baby in the crowd. Really? And uh, oh, our, nice. our grand chic at the time was a very rotund and jovial fellow named Chuck Gustafson. And he's the guy in the background going, hear, hear. He, oh, yeah. he said that all the time. Uh, <laughs> so, so that brings back memories for me. But I, I'm really oh, happy nice. to have that because he was still a fantastic jazz pianist. Uh, I, w I wish he had made commercial recordings, and I, you know, I took it upon myself as a starving college student to get him recorded. And happily, one of my college buddies, Scott Comerford, had a multi-track reel-to-reel tape recorder. And I said, I said, ah, we're going to Marvin's house, you know, because <laughs> and we got Marvin playing on the same tracks: uh, tuba, accordion, piano, celeste, trumpet, and 
he taught me a rudimentary drum pattern. So I'm playing a snare drum. He said, he said, oh, brilliant. He said, just go mammy, daddy, mammy, daddy, mammy, daddy. And then do a, do a, 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 a smear across the snare drum. So you'll hear that. And You've now, still got now that you are aware of it, you'll become very irritated with it. <laughs> yeah. But but we did six new tracks of him and uh, he plays all the instruments and their songs that he wrote and he sings. So I, I feel relieved that I at least got that much of him recorded because yes. he was still yeah. brilliant. You know, I would watch him and I he would do these incredible runs down the piano and I would just go, do that in slow motion. How are you, what are you doing? You know, because it was like <laughs> Fats Waller, you know, it was just incredible. Yeah. And he said, oh yeah, I, I, he said, I love Fats Waller and I got to see him. There was the, the Frank Sebastian Cotton Club was right down the street from the Hal Roach Studios and he was playing there one week and I went to see him and he said, I shook hands with him and his hands were so big it was like shaking hands with a bunch of bananas. And he, he, <laughs> said, he said, that's that's how he could do a tenth, which is like a C to the E after the C higher up. So it's 10 right. notes. He said he could do a tenth just like this. He says, no, I can't do it. Can you do that? And I said, no. He said, you'll have to hop it like I do. So you, instead of going C and E at the same time, you go C, E, C, E, C, E. You'll have to hop it. And he said, the way to play stride <laughs> piano is you play as fast as you can, as slow as you can. So you go, da-dum, ching, boom, ching, da-dum, ching, boom, ching. And he says, eventually, you'll get your speed up, but you have to get the accuracy first. Right, so yeah. play as slow as you can, as fast as you can. So that was that was his piano lesson to me. That's fantastic. What a night! You say you seem like a lovely guy. It's um, again, I was born too too late. Well, <laughs> I'm in the wrong country as well, which well, is a bit of a barrier. Well, you know, I I try to preserve and present everything I have, and yeah. if I ever get everything organized and digitized, there is still a wealth of unused material. Uh, oh, yes. So what's what's in the Blu-ray is the tip of the iceberg. So oh, I just I, I I need I need a couple of uh, assistants to help me get everything all put together and uh, out there. So no, you you big tease, <laughs> you big <laughs> Sorry. tease. Sorry, <laughs> you know. Oh, it sounds great. Yeah, it sounds great. Um, but uh, anyway, we'll 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 just head on back into early to bed. I'm afraid I'm going to drag you back in. Okay, <laughs> just for a minute. Drag me back um, to bed. The Lo- location, uh, well, I say location. That's obviously all all done in the studio. Yeah, it's that's uh, one of the few films that's entirely interiors. Yeah, and uh, uh, I have the names of the guys who were the the art directors. Let's see. I think it's Ted Driscoll. Let's see here. Uh, yeah. Oh, uh, Harry Black and Harry Hopkins. Harry Hopkins was frequently one of the guys who d- did the sets. And also a guy, he's not credited on this one, or he's not credited at all, but I found the credit anyway. Um, Ted Driscoll is another one. Harry Black was usually a prop man. And uh, hes they said he was the guy, if you needed a pie thrown from off camera, or uh, 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 Thomas Benton Roberts said uh, in the shot in Two Tars when Harry, when Harry Bernard gets the tomato in the face. He said, I didn't throw that. He said, Harry Black did that. Harry Black uh-huh. had incredible aim. And whenever they needed a shot like that, they got Harry Black because they knew if they needed it right in the kisser, he would do it. He was you know, like a baseball <laughs> pitcher. He was terrific. Fantastic. And Harry Black became the wardrobe supervisor. And for some strange reason, known to only to Harry Black, I have you can see in the chapter for a chump at Oxford, there's a card, a birthday card given to Stan uh, on the set of the chump at Oxford. And it's signed by everybody in the crew. And it says, Mother Black. 
<laughs> oh yes, you mentioned and that's the bus and that's yeah. that's Harry Black because he he was the the wardrobe supervisor. Well, I don't know. You know, they always say that the the men making uh, motion pictures were the hairdressers and the set decorators were usually the gay guys. So I don't know. <laughs> Maybe that's why he was Mother Black. Could be. I'm not making any judgment yeah. call. But uh, I was going to say it's probably because he's the person who's bringing you your clothes. That could and, be. Uh, yeah. as, as your mother would. Your do. mother. I, I, your mother's dressing you. That could very well be. That could very well <laughs> could be. be. But anyway, that is Harry Black. And uh, so never, never credited on screen as Mother Black. <laughs> and do you see? Do you see any uh, any similarities in the set? Because obviously, w- w- when we look at big stately rooms, yeah. I, I always think of Wrong Again. Well, you'll and, see the, um, the Blue Boy painting is there. That's right. If, yes, if, that's if, exactly. If you look in the yeah. background, the Blue Boy painting is is there. Not that's nearly right. as big as the real one is. <clears throat> Uh, that's right. I've seen the real one, and it's gigantic, you know. Uh, so uh, the the Gainsborough, um, yes, it's yeah. it, it, it does not fit on your wall, <laughs> unless you're unless you have a twenty five foot high ceiling. Maybe then it would. Yes, uh, yeah. and but, you don't normally keep it in the hallway, right next to the front door, either. Yeah, exactly. So uh, <laughs> does that crop up again in Fixer Uppers? There's a there's a painting on an easel behind May Bush. I've seen it in some stills, and I'm thinking, is that uh, Blue Boy again? I'll, I'll have to look. There is there is a still where I think there is a painting that's all ripped up, which indicates that there is something that Charles Middleton has become very angry and has ripped up the <laughs> painting. Uh, I think some I think there's a painting in the Thelma Todd short done in oil that also shows up in Fixer Uppers. Uh, I just recently one of the scripts I just acquired is for Fixer Uppers, and I have not, I have not looked at it yet, so I don't know. I do know from the first page that there is material that's nowhere to be found in the movie. Uh, I mean, that's what makes these scripts so fascinating is you see the ideas that they trotted out and which actually got into the script. But as, as Hal Roach always said, 50% of what's in the script will not play. And he was so wise to have that as a standard operating procedure, as a, a basic assumption you know, did not get angry and say, we spent all this time putting this script together and by God, you're going to film this script. You know, some producers probably have that attitude, but, but, but Hal Roach is like, is like, no comedy is an unusual special animal and it needs special care and feeding. And, you know, it, 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 it's funny on the page, but it ain't on the stage. And Absolutely. you know, you gotta, you've got to have people on the stage to say, well, that didn't work. What did we come up with? And, you know, there are some cases like tit for tat where the script has virtually no relation to the movie and the movie is oh, right. far superior to the script. So, you know, that, that shows the wisdom of, uh, you know, let's, let's get it up on the stage and see what works and what doesn't see if it works. Yeah. Brilliant. Yeah. Hats off to Mr. Roach. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> that's what he was that's doing. a script I wish I had. Yes, of course. Yeah. So anyway, uh, early to bed. Uh, yes, the, the set design is ornate. I, I mean, Hal Roach movies never looked cheap, uh, yeah. especially when they were being uh, distributed by MGM and there was uh, a, a nice cash flow from uh, Leo, Leo the Lion. Yeah. I just saw MGM. What do you mean, MGM? He came round the... <laughs> And the, and the folks over at Lowe's Incorporated in New York. But anyway, um, the Roach Studio had everything that it needed to, to make its own sets, costumes, scenery, everything. It was all there, self-contained. Uh, there were times when they rented costumes. For example, one reason that um, 
Devil's Brother really didn't cost all that much. Uh, it only cost $200,000 to make, which is not much for a feature film in 1933. Uh, there had been so many movies already made from that time period that they could go to Western costume and get all the costumes they needed and not have to make these things. See? Right. Whereas in other right. instances, the studio had to... Uh, they 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 made all the fezes for Sons of the Desert on the Roach lot. They wound right, up right. in Western costume. I think they they maybe they sold them to Western costume, um, but uh, they they made them themselves at the Roach Studios. Uh, so uh, uh, anyway, that's you know I just I marvel at the quality uh, in in the Roach pictures and with particular regard to the the sets and the costumes. Um, yeah, and, and, especially for the early silence, is it? Yeah, yeah it's just yeah. incredible. And, and yeah. also, something about early Tibet is it is very much a film of the Roaring Twenties. You know, yeah. it really exemplifies. You know, we're we're just overflowing with money and booze and the Jazz Age and everything's great. We've we've fought the last war there will ever be in the world, and the stock market yeah. is going up, 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 and it's just prosperity. Yes. And hey, you know, we're we're doing great. Just as One Good Turn, <laughs> a few uh, years yes. hence, is very yes. much a film of the Great Depression, you know. Yeah. And if you want to go a little further, I think Jitterbugs is a, a very 1940s movie, obviously. Uh, you yeah. know, with, hey, Hepcats, we're here to spread a load of jam. <laughs> uh, when the zoot suits and everything else, you know. So there are Laurel Hardy yeah. being affected by the, the oh, and, and Atoll K with uranium. Right. Oh yes, as, yes as, of course, as, yeah. as Ollie says in the ship's reporter interview, you know, it's it's an atomic comedy. Well, yeah. here we are in the yeah, post A yeah, bomb age, yes, and uh, so you know, goodness only knows. Had Laurel and Hardy continued into the '60s, we probably would have had you know the Beatles uh, impacting upon them somehow. <laughs> oh, that's a thought. <laughs> <laughs> a la a la Morcom and Wise uh, with the Beatles yeah. on their show, you know. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, Oh, if only. So, that would but, have been good. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I think early to bed and uh, we fall down particularly uh, are movies that only could have been made in 1928. Uh, you know, they're, they're just so much, uh, not only the subject matter, but just the general mood of those films uh, is very exemplary of the 1920s, the roaring 20s. And, and um I feel like that about uh, uh, Below Zero is very much of its time, isn't it, as well? That's a very much a kind of down I, and out. Now, and, now yeah, and, and I've always loved Below Zero, even though it's a very bleak movie. Mm. And most of the prints I've seen have no background music. I don't know why in recent years I've seen some that have some of the, the, the S.H.I.E.L.D. tracks during the scene when uh, uh, Leo Willis is stalking them uh, for their wallet. Uh, yeah. my print that I got from Blackhawk in the seventies and all the prints that I'd seen up to that point And for several years thereafter had no music. And I think it works better with no music. Uh, the only music being what they generate with the harmonium and the string bass, you know, um, uh, just as, uh, another story is, uh, when, uh, when, uh, they began doing the colorized versions of the films in 1986, Hal Roach saw the colorized version of the music box where they had added the Ronnie Hazelhurst uh, uh, <laughs> a, a, approximations of the Leroy Shield music. They go rather yeah. astray sometimes. Uh, and Roach was very angry, not so much at the colorization, but at the addition of music. Oh, right. And okay. he said, he said, 
Stan Laurel's whole idea was that there would be no music in this film. He said all he wanted you to hear was the piano complaining that it did not want to go up the damn steps. And it's <laughs> trying to tell you that. He yes. said that was the only music Stan wanted in the film was the piano complaining and yelling. And he said, and when you add music, it, it takes that away. And, and uh, now I did not hear Roach say that. I, it's a quote from Richard Ban in an article that's on the uh, website that uh, CCA has. But it's, it's, it's brilliant. And I love Hal Roach for that because it, 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 it speaks to such an understanding of what Stan wanted and being on the same wavelength with Stan. You know, we talk too yeah. much about their disagreements, but most of the yeah. time they were absolutely simpatico. And, and, you know, for Roach all these years later to say, to be angry that, you know, Stan's idea was that there was no music and he was right. And, you know, you shouldn't tamper with that. You know, yes, that was his you know, vision. God yeah. bless you, Hal Roach. So, you know, I, I, I was always very happy to read that, that he, he understood that that was the, the point of the, of the piano jangling and the point of there being no underscoring in that film. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and it works perfectly. Yeah. yeah I absolutely agree. Yeah. But yeah. anyway, yes, Below Zero, very much uh, of its time, uh, even though it's early in the Depression, uh, they, didn't, they didn't know they had another 10 years ahead of them. <laughs> That's so, bleak, isn't it? That's, yeah, <laughs> the bleak midwinter. <laughs> so, but yeah, but early to bed, uh, uh, very much a film of its time, and you know, for people who uh, who maybe had uh, alcohol-free childhoods, uh, they probably find it much more amusing than I do. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, funnily, funnily enough, I've done a um, in the Blockheads Facebook group that I that I run. Um, I just just today I've put a little poll. I thought I'm just going to put a poll that the members of the group just to see uh-huh. who like who likes it. And and just while we're while we're live, <laughs> I'll, I, I'll give you the. I, I would uh, guess it's probably one of the most controversial of Laurel and Hardy films. I would admit, or, or or one of the most polarizing, you know. Uh, obviously, uh, Charles Barr indicates that there are people who love this movie, and there are people like you and I who are kind of hmm, rather. <laughs> well, here we go. He, uh, the results, the results so far uh, okay. by the Blockheads jury. Right. Okay, so there are three options: I like early to bed, I don't like early to bed, and I have tis and tisn't as well. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, uh, and we have I don't like early to bed. Two votes. Uh. One of them was mine. Oh. <laughs> um, Tis and Tisn't is six votes, oh. and I like Early to Bed nineteen votes. Really? Okay. And that's just from that's just from the. Tonight. So all right. Well, so, I I am in the minority, but as I say, I probably judge it more harshly because of not what's in the film, but my own. Yeah. Uh, who, there is a film critic somewhere who was writing about Laurel and Hardy, and that he didn't really get it and uh, he said but i think that's my own failing and not that of the films and he says i once saw charles chaplin at a screening of one of their films and he was doubled over with laughter oh really and so because if chaplin had that reaction then it must be me and not laurel and hardy and i wish i could remember now where i read that quote someone somewhere seeing this will know exactly where it is that is a great quote i I think it's in mr laurel and mr hardy but it's it's a it's a film critic who who didn't quite understand what the big deal was about Laurel and Hardy, and he was uh, intuitively he had enough understanding about himself to to realize that it was probably not Laurel and Hardy who weren't funny. It was just he didn't quite <laughs> get it. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. I'm that way about yeah, Jacques Tati. I don't get Jacques Tati. Uh, I went to a screening of uh, Playtime, 
and people were screaming with laughter. And I said, what are they laughing at? I just, <laughs> I, I saw what he did. It wasn't funny. What are they laughing at? And I, to some degree, I have that uh, reaction with Harold Lloyd also. Now, I, I, Harold Lloyd was a master filmmaker. There's no question about it. You can put one of Harold Lloyd's uh, feature films on now for people who have never seen a silent movie before, much less an old comedy, and they will work perfectly. I mean, those films are so well-crafted and so brilliantly uh, executed. They work with any audience at any time. I just don't find Lloyd personally all that amusing or interesting. And I think it's, I think it's because he's too much a normal guy. You know, right. I, I like comedians to be underdogs. First of all, Harold Lloyd is a guy who knows what he wants and goes what he goes after it and gets it. So what does he need me for? <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know, Laurel and Hardy yeah. are always striving and never achieving. They need all the help they can get. So therefore yes. I'm on the sidelines saying, you know, Come on, boys, keep in there, keep going there punching. Same thing with Buster Keaton. I love Buster Keaton because usually his his whole thing is, how does this work? You know, yeah. I'm here in this strange world called reality. How do I how do I do this? What, what, what you know, I need to go from here to there. How do I do it? And sometimes he has super superhuman ability by you know jumping across a building, and other times he can't even boil an egg, yeah. you know. But 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 Keaton <laughs> right. I find fascinating and Laurel and Hardy I find endlessly fascinating, not because of not just individual characters, but the the relationship between the characters. Yes. But yes. Lloyd, I just yeah. kind of find bland and uh, certainly a good physical comic but i just don't find enough there to keep me interested uh, uh i i like the freshman very much I, i've seen for heaven's sake many times and speedy and several of them and they're perfectly good comedies i just don't fall in love with harold lloyd uh you know Gotcha. Now, yeah. now, I love I love Harold Lloyd. I've got to say, I really I, I do find him funny. Yeah. It's just his mannerisms and yeah. I don't know. There's just there's just something I, but, that I, I I do I like. I've always I've always loved Harold. But Lloyd. the th the it's, thing about about Lloyd and also Charlie Chase, you know, anybody people can do a W. C. Fields impression. They can do a Stan Laurel or an Oliver Hardy impression. There are all sorts yeah. of things that you can do. That you you immediately know who they are. How would you yes. do a Harold Lloyd impression? What do you do? <laughs> That's true. Smile. That's true. I mean, what you know? What is there? What is what is the colorful, unique, physical uh, attribute, or what is it that he does that immediately makes you go, "Ah, that you're doing Harold Lloyd." You know, the only thing, smile the only thing I, can, I can, yeah, it's kind of it's it's hard to kind of explain. Really, it's kind of a the the, the thing that stands out to me that I really like is just that kind of he, he sort of. It's not even a double take. It's just the way that he sort of he looks at something yeah. and then kind of like arches his neck a little yeah. bit and looks at it. Yeah. There's just something okay. in that. No, that he's, I really he's a, he's do a fine like. actor. He's a perfectly good comedian, but I just I wish he were a little more colorful. Yes, you know? I know what you mean. Yeah. You know, yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I, yeah. I like the Curly Howards of the world. You know, Curly right. of the Three Stooges to me is a brilliant comic because I don't know anybody before or after who was like him. Where did he come from? He he. he Everything about him is unique. And maybe you don't like the Three Stooges, and I don't care for all the slapping and eye-poking, but there is, at their core, some very inventive comedy. And Curly, particularly, is just, where did all of this come from? And nobody was more astonished about that than, than Larry and Moe, because Curly, personally, was very shy and retiring. So the fact that when he got on stage, he suddenly became this dynamo and this entirely original comic just 
you know, they had to pick their jaws up off the floor. You know, the, this is your younger brother. You know, when when did he start being funny? You know, I don't know. You know, but but he became the star of the act. You know, so I, I like I like I like comedians that are colorful enough and otherworldly enough, so that you know, you know, they're a little bit out of kilter with the world and Laurel and Hardy are that way and Fields and Keaton and the Three Stooges are not not quite of this world whereas Harold Lloyd particularly in the 20s and no wonder he was so popular he he is the he's what everybody aspired to be yes you know, yeah he, of course. if you were a young man in 1925 would you want to be Harold Lloyd absolutely not just <laughs> and not just the film character but really Harold Lloyd making millions <laughs> yes. of dollars <laughs> you know, owning the the film company and having what seventy five percent of the profits or whatever he made, you know, yes, and make, having right. Green Acres at that young age, this huge mansion. I mean, he was a success story on screen and off. So uh, very true. No wonder. He so where do you so where do you stand on where do you where do you um, stand on Chaplin, uh, Randy? What's your what's your thoughts on Chaplin? Um, I, I I I I love in particular the Mutuals. Um, I really wish that set of what were supposed to be the ultimate restorations had been, but I'm very disappointed in those. Uh, right. They're they're too slow. Uh, they, that certainly cannot be the best source material because a lot of it looks like bad photocopies, and uh, uh, the orchestration in many cases is much too uh, bombastic. Uh, we're looking at two real comedies. We're not looking at Ben Hur. Um, but <laughs> when I see them in the prints that were made by Van Buren in the early '30s with the hot jazz soundtracks, which to me are they're not intrinsic, but they are for me, uh, these early 30s tracks. Uh, and I knew one of the guys who was on those tracks. I knew a man named Arnold Brillhart, who was an, uh, an alto saxophonist in New York studios in the 20s and 30s, made thousands of dance band records. And uh, one day I knew him when he was from the time he was 89 until he died at 93. And he was absolutely as mentally sharp. Talk, I could talk to him just like I'm talking to you. And he and he remembered absolutely everything. So I always brought a tape recorder when I talked to him. And he said, he said, he says, you know, I remember doing some tracks for some old Chaplin comedies. And I said, I know exactly what those are. Those are the Van Buren tracks from 1933 and 34. And he goes, he goes, yeah, he goes, Tea Garden's on those too. Jack T. Garden, the jazz trombonist. And if you know what he sounds like and you listen to those, you go, that is Jack T. Garden. <laughs> oh, right, okay. So anyway, <laughs> I love the mutuals. Uh, um, and, and, and I, 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 I love, uh, the kid and, uh, uh, city lights and modern times. Um, I've seen a great dictator, but really don't know it all that well. Uh, have not yet seen Monsieur Verdu. I've got it, but I haven't seen it. Limelight. There is a great 90 minute movie hiding in limelight. Uh, you, you, <laughs> need, to, you need to cut about 35 minutes out of it. Um, right. and, uh, I think a King in New York is much better than, uh, than we remember it. Uh, when you look at it again, you go, well, this is actually pretty good, you know. Um, uh, I saw Countess from Hong Kong and don't remember it well. Uh, my, I, my, my memory of it at the time was this would have been great had it been made in 1936 with uh, Cary Grant and uh, Gene Arthur. But right, Carlos okay. Brando is not a guy to do uh, comedy, like comedy. Uh, <laughs> so uh, anyway, uh, yes, I like Chaplin. Um, he can be a little self-indulgent, but what the hell? It's his studio. It's his story. <laughs> yep, he's a director. He's a star. He's the composer. Why? Why not be self-indulgent? Yeah, you know? absolutely. Um, yeah. yeah, I'm yeah. just listening to his uh, autobiography actually, on audiobook. Oh, um, it, it's just come out on Audible who's, only about two or three weeks ago. Who's, who's reading it? 
Oh, obviously not. You're testing me. Obviously not, not Chaplin. I can't, I can't think of the guy. No, well, no, not Chaplin. But <laughs> he, he, he he's would, brilliant. If, if audio books had existed back then, you know damn well he would <laughs> be the guy was. reading it. <laughs> but actually, the guy the guy that's doing it is a, is a British guy, uh-huh. um, and and he's brilliant. And you can actually, I mean, I you know, I, I I've not heard Chaplin's voice very often, as you know, a lot of people haven't. But you could think it's oh, him. It's Chaplin oh, talking oh, to you. Oh, it's oh, very very the, good. The, the the irony of Chaplin is, of course, he he refused to make a talking picture until 1940. But once he yeah. found his voice, he never shut up. <laughs> In limelight, you go, Charlie, this is the third time you've been telling Claire Bloom to get out of that bed. We heard it already. You know, within, <laughs> uh, oh, he, yeah, yeah. Once he found his voice, boy, did he find his voice. So, uh, uh, but, but yeah, I, I think that the Chaplin Mutuals became the template for, all the short comedies thereafter. I, I, I think that that's the first group of, of comedies that we watch for sheer entertainment value as opposed to historical value. You know, I think even the even most of the, the Chaplin keystones, we say, well, you know, this is what they were making in 1914, and occasionally there's something that still strikes as funny, but we're really still looking at it to see how the technology was developing at that yeah. point. But 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 by the time of the Chaplin Mutuals, uh, the 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 understanding of of composition and cutting uh, are are uh, evolved to a point where um, you know it, it it works perfectly well for a modern day audience. Uh, you don't have to you don't have to preface it by saying you know well this is what this is uh, 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 an example of what they were making in 1914 and you'll notice there are occasional close ups and da 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 you know it's it's not historic value it's entertainment value entertainment yes I don't I know what you mean yeah yeah uh, and just uh, whilst we're on this detour at Marx Brothers what, oh, what do, you, do you like the Marx Brothers I I I love the Paramounts and uh, uh, a night at the opera. Uh, I think a day at the races is a mess. <laughs> yeah, I know that's yes. supposed to be another one of their great ones, but it could have been uh, if they had retained the Doctor Hackenbush number, uh, for which the audio does exist. Uh, uh, if they'd retained that and cut that stupid water ballet, and much as I, <laughs> much as I love Ivy Anderson with the Duke Ellington Orchestra, she was a wonderful singer, but they need to get rid of who that man because uh, it adds nothing <laughs> yeah. to the film except length. Uh, also, the problem with the day at the races is, is it about the sanitarium or the racetrack? You know, choose one. Um, yeah. Uh, just like at the circus, the Marx Brothers don't belong in a circus. Well, they do belong in a circus, which is why they shouldn't <laughs> yeah, be there. That's the problem. That's the problem. They, yes, they, they, that's why the opera works for them, but their circus doesn't, you know. Yes. So, yeah. And uh, Go West, I understand there's a wonderful script that Bert Kalmar and Harry Ruby wrote for it, which did not wind up being the one that they made. And I would love to read that Kalmar and Ruby script. Somebody needs to do a book on Kalmar and Ruby, by the way, because they did the good Marx Brothers pictures and Eddie Cantor's Kid from Space. They did Wheeler and Woolsey and Eddie Cantor and a lot of other people. And they have that same early Marx Brothers style of humor. So, you know, what we think of as being the Marx Brothers is in some regard Kalmar and Ruby humor. Uh, and, and they were also great songwriters as well. So they're, I think they're deserving of some study. But oh, anyway, yeah. yes, I like the Marx Brothers. Um, I wish they'd made more movies and and, and more good movies. Um, yeah, uh, yeah. I like The Big Store, oddly enough. And I like, uh, okay. and I like A Night in Casablanca. 
Um, yeah. uh, Love Happy, I have never yet seen in a good print. I have a Blu-ray of it, so I will look at that one of these days. Uh, but when I saw it as a kid, it was always a terrible murky 16, which, of course, unfortunately colored my opinion of the film because, you know, it, it, it looked cheap uh, through no fault of the film, just a bad, a bad dupe. Uh, but but uh, the the Paramounts are wonderful, and you know they're so great. You can only watch them maybe once every three years because you have to savor them. You know, yes, there's not yes. a lot of them. There's only one horse feathers and one monkey business and one duck soup. So uh, you know you don't want to uh, become too uh, well aware of them. You don't want to, to over abuse them. Uh, you want yes. you want them to remain fresh in some way. Uh, so yes, I, I, I do like the, the March brothers. The thing about them is, is these are bizarre characters in an, individually. And how do these four guys, uh, come together? How, you know, how, how do Groucho and Harpo wind up in the same, uh, uh, ship as, uh, stowaways, you know, uh, <laughs> you know, yeah. you know where, where, where? If, if Curly Howard is weird, the Marsh Brothers are ultra weird. You know, <laughs> a man with a painted mustache and uh, right, another man yeah. who who doesn't speak and he keeps handing his leg to people. You know what? <laughs> where? You know this just uh, bizarre humor. And of course, um, I'm not surprised they wound up at Paramount because Paramount was the one studio in that time that was. They were almost always on the brink of, of uh, you know, going away of the financially financial disaster, and so I think their attitude was, "We got nothing to lose. Let's let's make the most uh, unusual pictures we can." Nobody else would have made million dollar legs uh, if you've ever seen that film. It's just a bizarre movie uh, or International House. You know, these are strange. They're very entertaining. But you know, we, MGM would have run away in horror. You know, MGM wanted everything to be nice and middle class, and you know they never wanted the sound to have too much bass or too much treble because they thought that was annoying to the patrons. So poor Douglas Shearer at the MGM sound department was going nuts because Mayer kept saying, "No, I only want mid range, no, no bass, no treble." You know, so MGM sound is always crummy compared to Warner Brothers or Paramount, who have full. Uh, frequency. So uh, yeah, uh, Paramount was the strange studio that gave us, but they gave us Mae West, they gave us W.C. Fields, they gave us Charlie Ruggles and May Bo uh, Mary Boland, you know, these people that were not usual movie stars. They weren't Gable or Garbo, they were weird. <laughs> you know? But because they were weird, they became popular because uh, there wasn't anybody, there was nobody else like W.C. Fields or nobody else like Mae West, you know, so Paramount, uh, you know, took a gamble on people like the March Brothers, and uh, um, you know, we thank goodness they did because uh, uh, I otherwise I think Paramount was the only studio where the March Brothers could have done what they did in those pictures. I think anybody else would have said, "Boys, you know, in in they're not going to go for this in Kansas," and you know, Paramount was who cares? You know, we we'll we'll get them in New York. You know, they love them in New York. We'll get them in New York. So. So, yeah, so the short answer is, yes, I like the Marx Brothers very much. I love it. And I'm, love I'm, it. I'm discovering Wheeler and Woolsey. Um, oh, okay. Uh, uh, we watched Kentucky Colonels the other night, and uh, I like them very much. I tend I tend to like Woolsey more than Wheeler. Uh, Woolsey's the one with the glasses. Um, right. And he's he's sort of uh, a, a, a lower-key Groucho. Um, um, he has a cigar, he has glasses, and he's usually the one with the, the, the puns. Uh, but but he is his own style of comic. I don't think he I don't think he's a, a Groucho uh, imitator. Uh, so I, I I like what I've seen thus far. 
Um, I've never seen a single wheel of rumbles. Well, I've got to say, so well, maybe, they're, maybe they're, I should. They're worth they're worth checking out. I think, uh, particularly yeah. the earlier ones, uh, Hold'em Jail and uh, Picharino and uh, Diplomaniacs, particularly, is a good one. I think that's another Calmar and Ruby picture. Uh, ah, so so yeah, they're they're real well worth seeing. Um, mm. So and uh, and and I like I like Max Senate comedies of the late twenties also. Uh, okay. Uh, uh, I know that uh, Dave Glass and Dave Wyatt are, are embarking on a big uh, Billy Bevan uh, uh, Blu-ray project, and I'm oh, okay. really looking forward that. to that because uh, yeah, uh, the difference between Senate and Roach is that Roach's comedies were built on personality, and they were slow-paced, and uh, gags were secondary. Whereas Senate, the comics could almost be interchangeable. It wasn't built on their personalities, uh, and it was gags, gags, gags. But that's a perfectly valid. Uh, 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 philosophy, you know, and it's 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 good that they had such differing pers- uh, uh, perspectives because they're different styles of silent comedy. They they weren't the same. And then you have uh, Al Christie, which was basically all situation, you know, and not not very much. Um, another person worth checking out is Lupino Lane. Um, oh yeah, boy, yeah. what I've seen of him, he's terrific. And uh, he made a bunch of silent comedies for educational in the late twenties, and everyone I've seen is just a gem. He's really. Somebody well worth uh, in investigating, Lupino Lane. Yeah, yeah. Well, it, we'll check it no, out. Someone Brilliant. whom Stan Laurel knew as a boy because Lupino Lane was Nipper Lane uh, in the music halls when he was a teenager. Ah, and, right. And when he was about the same age as Stan. And so when Nipper Lane was a star at 13 in the music halls, you can bet yeah. that Stan Laurel was envious and saying, I want to be that guy. And when he was yeah, 16, exactly. he started being that guy. Uh, yeah. Wow. Wow. Okay. Um, well, this was a diverting <laughs> have, diversion. Have I, I, have I exhausted <laughs> you with my, my roundabout way of speaking? Never. And, and no, no, no. To 27 different topics besides early to bed. My apologies to everybody listening to this. I love it. That's, <laughs> that's why we love having you on, Randy. Um, let me ask you this question, though. I, I'm, I'm just, I'm, in, I'm intrigued at the moment with this because I'm, I'm sort of, I've been rewriting my essays on, on these, these films, um, and early, so, should married men go home? Obviously, I've just covered. Oh. and we talked. I was talking with Glenn Mitchell about um, the very strict, and I'd love to hear what, what you know about this. The, the, the decision to get rid of Edna Marion, Viola Richard, Dorothy Coburn. Mm. Very, very strange decision. Um, in in all of the the, the press that I've seen, um, those three were part of the plan going forward for the next season of comedies. Mm. Um, it specifically stated that, and then they just suddenly gotten rid of mm. in one in one fell swoop. Um, do you know anything about that? Why why they were mm. just discarded Ed, in that way? Ed, Edna Marion is the one who had quite a career apart from. Roach, uh, there are, I think if you look for her on uh, on Google and go to images, you'll mm. find posters of other comedies where she is the star. Mm. And uh, yeah. sometimes it's Edna Marianne with an A and sometimes with an O. Uh, yeah. I, think, I think she actually signed autographs both ways. <laughs> right, okay. Uh, Dorothy okay. Coburn kept working in the business primarily as a stunt woman. And she was also yes. she was also yeah. quite a she was from Montana and she was quite a good horse rider and uh, yeah. she did uh, double work in a lot of westerns so she was not without work. Uh, she's yeah. one of those people who I only knew had still been alive when I read her obituary. I was so yeah. sad when I read. It's like oh no, she was here. Yeah. You know, I, yeah, I, I, I wish I could have talked to her. 
Yeah. No, I don't really know of any reason why all three of them would have been, uh, you know, would have been dismissed after one yeah. year uh, because they're yeah. all very capable and, uh, you know, yeah. certainly uh, uh, they, they have personality beyond good looks. Uh, Dorothy, mm. Dorothy Coburn particularly. Uh, yeah. You know, I love her in uh, um, Second Hundred Years and uh, uh, Battle of the Century. You know. Yeah, and Finishing Touch as well. Yeah, Fantastic. yes, yes. I mean, she has personality. Yeah. She she should have carried over into the talkies uh, yeah. as one of the stock company people, really. Uh, yeah. You know, she she had that talent. Um, and, and, yeah, I don't I don't know. Um, there there may be an article somewhere that will indicate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've, well, I've I've been I've been trying to find it. Uh, I mean, because it, what I find very odd as well as when I was writing the, the early to bed um, essay uh, just a few days ago because um, this is at the same time Hal Roach has just gone on his around the world yes. tour yes. With, with his wife his marriage saving tour his, his reconciliation tour yes exactly um, and there's, a, there's when he's coming back he, he, he comes back into New York um, and he takes his wife to see uh, Steamboat Bill Jr oh. Uh, whilst in New York, okay, mm-hmm. so ju- that was just that was on the twelfth of May. I think they arrived back in California on the twenty fourth. So it's it's all very current, mm-hmm. um, and he is very taken by Marion Byron. Is it Marion Byron? Yes, Marion Byron. Yeah. Um, and there's a there's an article in Exhibitors Herald, a moving picture world, which said um, last fall Hal Roach uh, set off on his voyage of discovery. <clears throat> the principal reason for the tour, or at least one of the most important, was to be a search for a new type of feminine screenplay. Huh. That's not a good thing to do if you're trying to reconcile with your wife. <laughs> well, <laughs> that's right. I, mean, it's, I it's, love it's, you, honey. Quite... Where are those other girls? <laughs> <laughs> So it says for quite some time, the executives of the Roach Fun Factory yeah. had realised their need of a piquant, small, somewhat devilish leading lady mm. of a distinct type of appeal. You've just gotten rid of three. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, I'm just, it just, I don't know. I just can't kind of like, yeah, weighed up really. I don't know what they were playing at. I, but, uh, I, I, I missed talking to Marion Byron by this much because I did do an interview with Lou Breslow, who was oh, okay. to whom she was married. Yes, and yeah. she was not feeling well that day or something, so oh. I didn't get to talk to her. But I know that oh, had I been more aggressive, I probably could have. And had I known at the time that Laurel and Hardy actually were in a pair of tights, yeah, you've seen yeah. you've seen the script, I'm sure, that has the yeah. uh, that has their section where basically the whole film veers off away from the established story and becomes a Laurel and Hardy film. Well, it's a good thing that they really, really, it's a good thing that they cut that. But it would be lovely to see that footage, knowing that it was filmed. But anyway, uh, we have the Christmas uh, stills of uh, Marion Byron with Laurel and Hardy. Yeah. And yeah. there are a few other oddball publicity film uh, stills that she did with them, but she never wound up appearing in a movie. She and Anita Garvin were buddies well into the 80s. Uh, they still, you know, even though they only made the three pictures together, they, uh, they were fast friends for the rest of their lives. You know, oh, I see, I see peanuts all the time. Peanuts Byron. And, uh, and, uh, <laughs> she shows up in a lot of, uh, Warner brothers pictures in the early thirties. So, uh, and as I say, she married Lou Breslow, who was the, uh, screenwriter on uh, great guns and a haunting. We will go, uh, uh, based on the two films that I've seen that he directed, I think he was a better director than a screenwriter. Uh, right. He directed Punch right. Drunks, which was one of the very, very best Three Stooges shorts and really beautifully directed and cut. And so he, he wasn't without talent. He just wasn't the guy to write for Laurel and Hardy. 
You know, uh, when he wrote Great Guns, he had just written a film for Milton Berle called Whispering Ghosts. And he does the same kind of dialogue for Milton Berle as he does for Laurel and Hardy or, or other way around. You know, it's just it's just 40s snappy comedy without any real relation to Laurel and Hardy dialogue. So anyway, he was married to Marion Byron. And because of that, I missed uh, I could have talked to her, but uh, she was not in good health. But uh, she, cert she certainly is uh, adorable in uh, a pair of tights. Um, which is by far the best of the three pictures that she made with Anita Garvin. Um, the other two do survive, and I think you can get them from Germany. Uh, there is there's a, a DVD set of Hal Roach comedians, and uh, it's I think all three are included on that. So yeah, but um, but uh, but Edna Edna had a career beyond Hal Roach and Dorothy Coburn, maybe not credited and maybe not a featured player, but certainly. Uh, working in the business. So, but why they were, I think she doubled for Ginger Rogers. I think, um, uh -huh. uh, Glenn was telling okay. me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but but why, why they were all let go at the same time. I don't know. You don't know. Nope. Fine. Fine. Yeah. That's fine. Their, 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 um, their agent wanted too money to re up is probably it. You know, well, it could be, you know, well, yeah, they're, 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 they're getting $60 a week this time. Now we want 120. Well, thanks. You know, I mean, I, I know why they got rid of Gene Harlow. Uh, because Jean Harlow came to Hal Roach, basically she had a better deal. Uh, so, so the ruse was, um, you know, I'm married to Mr. McGrew, and Mr. McGrew uh, doesn't want me to be in pictures. He wants me to be his wife all the whole all the time, and this is ruining my marriage. So I'm getting out of the picture business. I can I get a release from my contract? And Mr. Roach said, Oh, of course, I don't want your marriage to break up because you're making these comedies. You know, there you go. And of course. Gene and Mama already had another deal cooking, I think, with uh, Howard Hughes to make uh, Hell's Angels. So that's why she wanted out of her Roach contract. Sneaky, sneaky, sneaky. But, but that, but that uh. was that was the story she told Hal Roach. Yeah, I've actually seen the the contract. It was at USC, and it was Harleen McGrew the third. It was the way that it was signed. I guess Harleen was her actual first name. Because I remember, I remember that seeing Harleen McGrew, and I said, "That's that's got to be Gene Harlow," you know. Yeah. So yeah. So so there's another. Uh, I, I, at one point, I think about 1982, I was at a uh, a high school in uh, Huntington Beach, which is about uh, 15 miles south of me. Uh, Hal Roach had become friendly with a lady who was an English teacher and a film studies teacher at Edison High School in Huntington Beach. And on the last day of school, and he did this for three or four years, Hal Roach would go all the way from Bel Air, about 50 miles south to Huntington Beach, to speak to the film students at Edison High School, which was good enough to actually have a film studies program in a normal you know, high school. And so Hal Roach would do uh, speak to them and then do a Q&A. And when I found out about this, I talked to the teachers. Could I please sit in and record these? And sure, sure. So, so I have recordings of some of them. And regarding the starlets, one of the kids said, Mr. Roach, you had at your studio at various times, Gene Harlow, Thelma Todd, Lupe Velez, Carol Landis, all these beautiful women. And he says, you know, we always hear about motion picture producers and the casting couch and, you know, them chasing the girls around the desk and all of this. He said, you know, you know, when you had all these beautiful women at your studio, did you ever take advantage of them? And Mr. Roach said, oh, I don't think I did that more than two or three thousand times. 
<laughs> now, I I truly don't think that Hal Roach uh, engaged in that. But I mean, you know, Hal Roach was anything for a laugh, and uh, th- that's why you have to sort of tread lightly on any quotes from him because a lot of times he's more interested in entertaining you with a story than telling you, you know, absolute chapter and verse, you know, but I I do remember laughing at that, that he said, Oh, I don't think I did that more than two or 3000 times. But the timing, if you think of the timing of it, Randy, he, he, he's, 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 he's almost having a divorce. Yeah. And he, and he go, he disappears around (laughs) the world. And then the three starlets get uh, gotten rid of. Yeah inexplicably in one in one fell swoop you may have you may have hit on something yeah, there, well right? i don't know I, I i i tend to think it's probably you have to remember the roach lot even with the elaborate sets that we love so much uh those sets were reused the reason they're elaborate is because you only had to make them once and then you could reuse them over and over and over again uh you know there are times when you can recognize uh, a set in a laurel and hardy picture from another one uh if you if, if you look at uh, oliver the eighth you can recognize parts that were used in uh, murder case uh, you know, so so there, and there are. Th- I I think I see uh, the stove and helpmates. I think is the same one they use in birthday blues with the little rascals that that uh, expands when they make the big birthday cake. Uh, so props show up. The, there's a there's a mantle clock that you see over and over and over again until it finally gets destroyed in dirty work. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, you know they reuse these things. Um, uh, Roy Seawright always said regarding special effects he said they would give me a script and they would say now what's the most economical way we can do this and you know if i would come to them and it was too much they'd say forget it we'll think of something else he said you know they they always hit you over the head until you were black and blue that they had no money they had no money so but they never look like they always look you know no that's right they they uh, they are on the level of mgm's other product and you have to remember that roach was the only independent producer who was released by MGM, you know, and, and because of that, once they got into features only, that's why Roach was in a bit of a quandary because he had to make films that were as polished as MGM movies, but on maybe one third of the budget. Right. Plus, yes. plus he had MGM saying, <clears throat> we want romance and glamor and song and Stan Laurel saying, I want low comedy. It's like, <laughs> it's like, I have to satisfy these two things. And MGM is giving me the money. You know, what do you do? So you have to sympathize with Roach. You know, he he was in a difficult position. So you can see where the tensions may have arisen, exactly, certainly between exactly. them. Yeah, it's yeah. been pulled both ways because yeah. they Roach needed Stan and Stan needed Roach as, as much as each other, really, didn't they? You know, and and the whole livelihood of the studio depended on Stan Laurel. And when Stan Laurel began being a little bit uh, unstable. Uh, thanks to uh, Ruth and Ileana and other uh, <laughs> bad things, you know, that really imperiled the studio. Uh, you know, Roach made a film called Vagabond Lady with Robert Young and Evelyn Venable, and he directed it, I think. Anyway, it was supposed to be sort of a screwball comedy, and it was made around the time of Bonnie Scotland, and it was supposed to be Roach's uh, example to MGM that yes, I can make other films that are on a par with MGM and without Laurel and Hardy. Well, it's a terrible movie. And had it been made with Spencer Tracy and Gene Arthur in the leads, it might have worked. But Robert Young and Evelyn Venable had no chemistry, and it just doesn't work. And it lost tremendous amounts of money. So unfortunately, it proved the opposite to MGM of what Hal Roach was hoping to prove, and that just made Stan Laurel all the more valuable. 
And once once it looked like there were no more Laurel and Hardy pictures after Blockheads and it looked like they were, you know, the team was over. That's why MGM severed its connections with Hal Roach. What did he have to sell them? You know, they didn't want General Spanky. They didn't want uh, 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 Kelly the Second. You know, what do we need those for? We can make feature films. And by that time, MGM was making their own shorts. They bought our gang and they were making uh, Pete Smith, Robert Benchley, uh, Crime Does Not Pay, Passing Parade. They had short subjects homegrown by this point. So they didn't need Hal Roach. So that's why he had to go to United Artists. Yeah. So yeah. there's another diversion for you. <laughs> I love it. I love it. I could keep going all night, but I don't think we should. Um, so... I mean, yeah. having having gone through early to bed. Yes. Are you, did we are you really? Any, are you any, <laughs> I forgot. <laughs> we, yeah, we did a while ago, yeah. I think it just goes to show how, how little we want to talk about. Yeah, uh, yes. talk about most of the things. <laughs> yes. but, uh, Let, let's mean, talk I, I about think, Helpmates at some point. There's my favorite Laurel oh, and Hardy we'll picture, yeah. We will, we will do yeah. that, yeah. Um, actually, one thing we, we were going to talk about, I was going to ask you about, because we I know you wanted to talk about your Don Tootin, and obviously we, we've oh. passed that film already. Oh, yeah. But we were talking about we, we were talking about the point whereby your Don Tootin is a great example of what is Laurel and Hardy, yes. and, and Early to Bed is not yes. really. Yes. You know, it's, it's, it's that, that those if you balance them both up together. Yes. Uh, that film, uh, Helpmates and Blockheads, are the are three core films about the relate truly about the relationship? Um, I understand where Charles Barr, where he's coming from with his his interpretation of early to bed, and that may well be a valid one. Uh, it's just that a lot of other things about that film get in the way for me. <laughs> uh, but 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 for me, uh, uh, your darn tootin' and helpmates and blockheads are films that say, you know, no matter what, that friendship will survive. And in my, my pithy phrase always is that we don't just laugh at Laurel and Hardy. We love Laurel and Hardy and we love them because they love each other so much, which, yes, which, yeah. which is a, a dimension that you just don't see in other comedy teams. Uh, you know, the Marx Brothers, as I say, where do these guys come from? And you certainly would not see anything like the Soldiers Home Reunion amongst the Marx Brothers. Uh, uh, even even the Three Stooges, even with all the uh, slapping and all that stuff, there is a camaraderie, uh, uh, one for all, all for one among them. Um, Hope and Crosby uh, are always trying to to outwit each other to get Dorothy Lamore. So that that's you know they're rivals, they're not pals. Uh, and in fact, that was always a problem with outside writers for Laurel and Hardy. I remember reading the first script for Flying Deuces. And it was terrible. It was pit, Laurel and Hardy pitted against each other, and and, and also Great Guns. Um, they were rivals for Sheila Ryan. You know, the, the idea that these guys were buddies no matter what did not occur to those screenwriters. And so, you know, that's that's the thing about Laurel and Hardy is these two guys, these babes in the wood, uh, uh, different as they are from each other, are yoked together. Uh, happily, despite all the frustration that, that each causes for the other. So, you know, and, uh, you know, the, together through thick and thin, no matter what. And and how nice how nice that that was true in real life as well. But, yeah, that's I mean, right. That's, I think that's, that's, the, that's, the, that's, yeah. the, that's the lovely fairy tale that's true about Laurel and Hardy is that, you know, I mean, I knew Lucille Hardy for 15 years and she said, I never once heard the boys have any crossword with each other. Uh, they they were not particularly socially close, and that may be one reason why they lasted so long. 
Uh, but she but she said when we were on tour together, we were in each other's pockets for you know months at a time, and still you know if anything the the friendship got stronger. You know, so uh, she said, no, you know, they, they, you know, it, this is not uh, a fabrication. They really genuinely cared about each other. And uh, she said, especially when Babe's health was, was getting to be questionable, Stan was, you know, watching over him like a mother hen, uh, wow. you know, so she said, you know, he, they, there was a genuine affection there. Yeah, you know, that's lovely. Maybe, maybe not to the point of, uh, of Smith and Dale and Olsen and Johnson, who are buried together, but <laughs> nevertheless, <laughs> wow. there was a, a core affection there. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Definitely. Um, yeah, and I think just, you know, um, oh, you were going to you mention about your um, ideal reworking of early debates. Well, yeah, I, I, did. I, of... I think I went over that already, where, where, uh, oh, okay. where, where Stan would become the person who inherits the money. And, and as I say, because Ollie always assumes that he is the superior member of the team, uh, having him demoted to Butler is innately funny, you know, because he's, he's got to now this guy. And I say, if you had an opening sequence where Ollie's really berating Stan and now all of a sudden through this fluke, the tables are turned, you know, that, that would be a funny, and that's what happened essentially in Chump at Oxford. With, yeah, with Lord yeah. Paddington, so yeah. uh, I want, and also in La- uh, Laughing Gravy, the end of Laughing, the, the alternative ending. <sighs> I'm so glad that got cut. <laughs> well, yeah, oh. it, it makes it, it makes it, yeah, and it, because, it spoils the film. Well, for one thing, the ending of it is a cheap laugh. You know, it's you know, <laughs> yeah. I'm not there for you. I'm here for Laughing Gravy. Well, that's yeah, that's right. Yeah. That that negates what we love about Laurel and Hardy. You know, yes, it does. And yeah. uh, uh, you have here, you have. Two reels of lively visual comedy, and it slams shut for ten minutes of dull dialogue, you know, <laughs> uh, and sad dialogue. Why? Yes, that's right. You know, yeah. I mean, yeah. please. I'm, and of course, it for financial reasons, it survived into the foreign versions because they just wanted more and more footage. Because the longer the film, the more they could rent it for. Uh, but but thank God that that uh, that was cut from the film. I'm I'm glad it survives. But uh, it should never be incorporated into the film as part of it, as they've done in syndication. You know, it, that, that's why God made bonus extras on DVDs. That's just, right. Just yeah. as I hope sometimes someone will put out the real cut of Pardon Us, the 56-minute version, without that terrible fire sequence. Yeah, that's right. That's a bonus. That, that's awful, well, give, isn't give it? Us, that's a mess. Give us De Boat and Boat in Spanish, which survives in a beauty. You can get it uh, in, a, in a Spanish DVD. I've got it in a commercial DVD, and it's in gorgeous quality. You know, bring that out by itself. Don't cobble together a soundtrack in English and then put the fires in. Because, because the way it is now, you've got the very, very loud machine gun prison break thing, which is just noise, noise, noise. Followed by the, the the fire sequence, which is sirens, and it's just it's it's fifteen minutes of nothing but screaming and bullets, and oh, go away! <laughs> you know, this is not entertaining. So they knew what they were doing when they cut it to fifty six minutes. Respect the filmmakers and and what they knew to work, and don't and don't say, well, this must be the real cut because it's longer. You know, uh, film. So many film people make that assumption that the longer cut is always the one that the filmmakers wanted. And uh, I remember uh, uh, Howard Hawks got very angry when somebody brought out a longer cut of Red River. And he said, that's not my cut of Red River. He said, we had those damn 
long written transitions between scenes that were so long and so boring, we cut those and we had Walter Brennan narrate it instead, which made the picture move. He said, that damn long cut, that's not my cut. And, yes, uh, yeah. you know, so yeah. uh, well-meaning, you know, when they find new footage, they assume that the filmmaker wanted it in. And, they, you, know, they, they, you know, if you've ever made a movie, you realize that, you know, you're always going, this doesn't work, you know, out, you know, and you're, you're, you're getting rid of the chaff. So you don't appreciate well-meaning people putting it back in. <laughs> yes. Yeah. As you say, it's great, great to see it. We all want to see great more to footage. See, but, but put it yeah. on as an extra after the real yeah. film. Agreed. Yeah. Agreed. But I just, yeah, the the that ending on on uh, laughing Oof. grave, the alternate alternate one. I do like the bit where, it, as you say, Ollie's berating Stan in a way, yeah. and then Stan gets this letter, and he's like, "Oh, yeah, yeah." He does get an inheritance, doesn't he? Yes, he does. Yeah, yeah. But you know, when you know when love has turned to hate, he's like, "Oh no, 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 no! I don't, I, I don't want to hear that." So, <laughs> I love Ollie's voice, no, but not that one. You know. It, he sings his so uh, Speaking of which, I just I just typed up the script for Bohunks, and uh, yeah. I wish I had a cutting continuity for the original issue of Bo, of Bohunks because he evidently at the very beginning sang pagan love song, uh, b- before okay. before singing I love you I love you da 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 the one that it yeah. now opens with there was another song yeah. at the beginning. I love you. I love you. I love you, you are the ideal of my dreams, I always knew twould be someone like you, I've loved you forever, it seems. Four years in my mind's fondest fancy, a picture of your face I drew, and I knew you somehow when I met you just now. You know what? What a shame that that doesn't seem to have survived. Yeah, yeah, we've been robbed. Yeah, robbed of another little song. That, that's a shame. Yeah. No, I think ultimately. I mean, for me, just going back to early to bed, I think ultimately the best version of early to bed is the Robert Youngson cut. <laughs> ah, uh, is that in further perils? Which, yes. which I've got. Yes. I'll have to go look and, and see that. I have, having just watched yeah. the full film about three or four times now, I'll have to go look at the uh, the edited version. Yeah, it's it's better. It's it's right to us. I think it's the last film on uh, on uh-huh. perils. Um, so you can skip right to that yeah. part, and it just it it cuts out it cuts out the bit where he's uh, he's pouring the water in the bed. He cuts all that out. Yeah. Um, the only bit it does do is it it gives you all of that crying on the floor after mm. the wrestling match. If they could have cut that yeah. out, yeah, that would have been better. The wrestling, I think, is funny. That that's okay. I don't and, mind the wrestling because Ollie's and, counting. And, and I think the bit when Stan falls in the cake and Ollie thinks that he's frothing at the mouth. I think that works. 
You know, yeah. I mean, there, yeah, it's, yeah. it's not a terrible film. There are elements of it that work. Yeah. It's just that there yeah. are elements that I find rather disturbing. And again, it's probably me more than the film. So, yes. oh, and of course, the the final gag as well. The final gag was a rehash yes. gag, wasn't it? It was reused. Uh, yes. What is it? Should men walk home? Which one was it? Hang on. Yes, it was. It? Yeah, should men walk yeah. home? That's right. There's yeah. there's so many yeah. Roach films of that period with titles like that, That's <laughs> you right. know, with yes. questions like that, question titles. Uh, yeah. Amy Walker yeah. was on a question title kick, but uh, yeah, <laughs> and and I'm not yeah. sure that I've seen that. I think I have at one point seen seen. Yeah, one. it's on YouTube. Uh-huh. Yeah, it's on YouTube because I mean I've, I've I haven't watched the whole thing. I just skipped to that particular scene. Yeah, but it, it's it's exactly the same set. Yeah, the the whole fountain and everything is, is absolutely the same set. But are the heads different? Um, the gargoyle heads? They are. They yeah. Because they because they they me. look like Ollie in early Tibet. They do. And, and yeah, the thing is, yeah. I think in in Should Men Walk Home, isn't he a burglar? Yeah, that's right. Well, so it doesn't quite work. Well, out, really. why yeah. why would they have gargoyle heads that look like him if he's a burglar and doesn't live there? <laughs> you know, see, it makes it makes perfect sense for Ollie to have yes. self glorification. You know, a statue of himself or or gargoyle yeah, right. heads of himself adorning this fountain. Right. You know, that's kind of a creative touch that uh, a megalomaniac <clears throat> multimillionaire would do. <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly, exactly. I think I think they li- they look very similar to the burglar. In the okay. Mabel Norman film, um, I think, um, but yeah, it's it is a bit, it, and I think it's a bit too long. It, it goes on for quite a while, and I think it's yeah. you know it's it's better. It's only better in early Tibet, mm. uh, and Bay Party's in Should Men Walk, walk Home as well, of course. Uh-huh. Okay. In fact, there is. I've seen this on YouTube. There is. Let me grab if you've got if you've got that. Yes. It, there's a really good copy of okay, it on good, there good. As, as an extra. Okay. The, the Atoll K BFI release. Very good. Yeah. It's um, yeah. It was one of the extra. Yes, features, I do. Is, a, that's a brilliant uh, Blu-ray. One, one, one of many reasons why I need to hook up my region-free player. <laughs> absolutely, yeah. absolutely, brilliant, Randy. I think we've probably exhausted what we what we are willing to say about it. <laughs> <We've laughs> exhausted Tibet. the patience of everybody listening and hoping that I would focus at one point. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't. I don't have ADHD. I honestly don't. I, I, I can focus on things. It's just that. No, no, no. It's, it's just that, that it, it, everything reminds me of something else, and I feel that you probably would be interested in hearing it. And so there we go. Oh, definitely, without a doubt, without a doubt. The, to be honest, the more diversions, the better, because there is always something brilliant well, in what you're going to say. Maybe, so. maybe you can take some of those little morsels and mine f- further uh, ideas for episodes out of them. Definitely, it might, might, might just spark some ideas for further uh, episodes of the we'll definitely we'll do that, the podcast. and we will definitely do the uh, the Marvin Hatley one because that will be lovely. Well, I think we'll we'll definitely do that. That would be really I, nice. I, I will go through all of my uh, Christmas cards and notes and everything else that I have from him and uh, look at those and uh, bring them for show yeah. and tell. That will be great. But uh, yeah, in, really, in the really meantime, nice. I have to go back to typing up scripts so that I have a new book for everybody by August. Uh, or, Come on, we're at, waiting. At least one, and I hope two. And uh, then goodness only knows what will happen. But these scripts, uh, I mean, I've also got already, I've got a script for the Bohemian Girl, which is vastly different from the film and very funny. And I really want to get that one out. Uh, I mean, it's it's like having new Laurel and Hardy movies. And I mean, in the case of Tickets for Two, it literally is having a new Laurel and Hardy movie. So that's true. Yeah, that's true. uh, I don't want these things to just be sitting here in my living room. I want them to be... Uh, exhumed and out among the world, and I feel oh, I feel lovely. an obligation to that because I've been given the opportunity. So I better take advantage yeah. of it, you know. And no, and, that's and great. thank God I have David Koenig, 
who knows how to turn what I put together into a beautiful book. I mean, he yes. did the design and everything on the on the big magic behind the movies. If, oh, that's if, a beautiful. If that book. had been left to my own design, I'd still be trying to do the design on page forty six. <laughs> All these years later, <laughs> right. you know, I, can, I, I that I can't do, but he can and uh, does a beautiful job. Yes. So thank God, uh, you know, I've known him since he was fourteen. So uh, there are there oh, are right. no coincidences. So I've got Brilliant. I've got enough work here for three years, <laughs> getting new books out. So let's let's pray it. that we all survive uh, everything, and uh, there will be Absolutely new. Right. We'll all be healthy, and uh, there will be new books in uh, 2023, 4, 5. Fantastic. And did you say you were aiming to do one volume of the movie scripts, or is that because there's a lot of scripts there you've just been telling me? Well, uh, I want to do another one of shorts. The first one was 20 screenplays of shorts, and I've, yes. I've already got that many to do for a second volume. Uh, right, and okay. then there are the features. Like I say, I've got scripts now for six or seven of the feature pictures. Oh, these are and, such nice and, uh, Lovely. You know, like I say, what makes them interesting is there are so many deviations from the finished product. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, it's, it's really interesting to see where they had ideas to take the storylines that didn't ultimately wind up in the pictures. Yeah. So I was just yeah. doing Bohunks yesterday and that has a very different ending from the finished film. So, oh, okay. you know, I mean, oh, fantastic. If, if you know the films, when you read the scripts, you go, huh, that's it. And once yeah. again, you know, 50% <laughs> of what's in the script will not play. So, uh, yes, there we go. But, but, yeah. but, but fun to read, nevertheless. Yes. Yeah. It's good to see what was in the, uh, in the writer's yeah. minds. Absolutely yeah. right. Brilliant. Randy, right. thank you so much again for being with us and spending this time. It's been, it's been fantastic. Thank you for putting up with and, me. Uh, <laughs> no way, not at all. Um, and I've got you, I have got you down for some other films Uh-oh. that you were mentioning that you'd like to do as well. All right. So, um, anytime. I'll, have to, I'll check my notes, but I'll be back in uh, touch. Any, Don't worry. Any, you anything you want me to blather on about, and I'm very good at blathering. <laughs> <laughs> so, okay thank you so much be All well be well to you and yours god bless you and uh un- you until we meet again so there it is i hope you enjoyed that discussion with randy if you'd like to see a video excerpt from the show i've posted the section where randy is showing us his new acquisition of all those vintage movie scripts uh, and you can find that on my youtube channel so just head over to youtube and search for the laurel and hardy blog and you should be able to find the clip there oh and many more besides of course so don't forget hot on the heels of this episode will be part two of our look at early to bed coming in a couple of weeks uh, well depending on when you hear this of course Um, In episode 21, Richard Ban will tell us all the positive things about Early to Bed that Randy and I are obviously overlooking. And in addition, Richard also answers a question that Glenn Mitchell and I posed to you all in episode 19 about trying to identify Viola Richard in her walk-on part in Tit for Tat. But if you can't wait until then, I have posted Richard's answer and an accompanying still in the Blogheads Facebook group. So you can join the group if you like, if you haven't already, and you can go and take a look at that. Links to the group and to the blog website, and also to the Blogheads merchandise, can be found in the podcast show notes as usual. So all that's left to say is thank you to our special guest, Randy Skretvet, thanks to the Bohunks Orchestra for the wonderful music, and last but by no means least, thank you so much for spending this time with me again. And until we meet in episode 21, it's goodbye from him. Goodbye. Goodbye from him. Goodbye. And it's a very goodbye from me. Goodbye.